every celebrity, their thought on Thursday and Friday would be, how do we skip the day? Beckham just flipped that on his head. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. Good morning and welcome to OTBAM. Yes, it is me. And no, it's not Friday. Do not adjust your screens. This is Thursday's OTBAM. I'm here. Shane's over there. How are you? Morning, Adrian. How are things? How are you getting on? A lot of people got excited, I think, when they saw you. They thought it was weekend impending, but uh, yeah. not to be. Nearly there. People around the office got very concerned that their week was nearly over, slash excited. Um, how are you keeping? Keeping well. Yeah, can't complain. Big, big announcement yesterday. Tell you what. A good reaction to it. Decent I mean, I reaction. say that with a slight surprise in my voice. is not really yeah, you sound very surprised. what I intended. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, ah, yeah, good reaction. Um, obviously, people just wanted people wanted to see what, what the post-Owen OTB was going to look like. And yeah, and this, this, this is, is it. it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to let you all down, but this is it. Um, I uh, liked a lot of the comments that were coming in off the back here, confirming that you're going to be um, a regular on OTB AM, Monday to Friday, um, as has been pointed out. Great stuff, Shane, says Michael Buckley. Come across as knowledgeable and your own quirky bits too. Comes across as knowledgeable. I mean, that's yeah. just all you have to do, really. You don't actually just have come to across be knowledgeable. as knowledgeable. Yeah. So you can you can fake it till you make it. You don't have to be in any way smart or knowledgeable. Yeah. Just uh, uh, say big words every now and again. You know, intermittently right. say big words. And where do we go from here? Yeah, so, exactly. Um, look, there's been a lot of there's been a clamour to be honest with you over the last 24 hours since that announcement was made in the show yesterday, and then your uh, PR department obviously kicked into gear in the afternoon. Yeah. And the announcement was made, and there's been a clamour. The audience have sort of wanted to know. Um, exactly who you are. We're going to come to that in a few months, few moments' time. Right. Um, I, I, I know. I, I know nothing about this. Who is Shannon? So we'll come back to that in a in a few minutes. Okay. Some good questions. And if you know, I think throughout the show this morning, if yeah, you out there have got questions for the new guy, uh, feel free to fire them into us, and we'll we'll do that over the course of the morning. Couple of other bits to get to before all of that. Um, some big news um, on the coaching slash managerial. Um, merry-go-rounds from different sports overnight. Uh, one not great. Stuart Lancaster being heavily linked now at Racing. It's uh, Jerry Thornley reporting it in the Irish Times this morning. Um, I think, you know, most Lancer support- supporters this morning will be hoping that that's some sort of a, a kite-flying exercise from Stuart Lancaster's people um, to secure him a longer-term yeah. deal with Leinster. I've never suspected that that's really been his remit, so I have my doubts about it. Nothing is yet on paper. He is going to meet with Jackie Lorenzetti, the owner of uh, Racing, via video over the over the weekend, um, and Lauren Travers as well, the uh, current head coach. Mm. They're going to have that meeting over the weekend. Nothing confirmed just yet. It's expected that at that meeting it will all be confirmed and yeah. that he will be joining them uh, at the start of or at the end of this season. Um, which just in the overall trajectory of what he's done for Leinster, you know, when he arrived, this is his seventh season when he arrived, mm. Leinster needed him, <laughs> he needed Leinster, you know, like Leinster had been uh, fallen away from the you know the expected levels they'd reached over the yeah. previous years. He was still rebuilding his career after the um, England's 2015 World Cup and they, they needed each other. It was a very symbiotic thing that worked. His stock has <laughs> soared unbelievably like I mean himself and Ronald Garr are two of the highest uh, rated uh, coaches in world rugby at the minute so yeah. I can I can understand Concern. why clubs have come calling for him but I mean that would just be a monster loss for uh, Leinster if it, if it does get confirmed yeah and even we know from leaders questions and off the ball that he is a smart smart man as well as a, as well as a great coach the players obviously talk to him at Leinster as well like especially now if it's announced 
at the very outset of the season, like we saw with with the Van Grand announcement with Munster last year, it can not derail things, but knowing how knowing that a coach is leaving at the end of the season, sometimes you're better off doing it cutthroat, getting it done with, and announce it, and then it's done straight away. But yeah, if this if this lingers on, and, and it's look, it seems to be fairly legit. I know he's been fairly long courted by by Rassing, um and seems to be a match probably made in heaven as well. I know Travers will probably go to that director of rugby role, which a lot of uh, teams are doing these days, but. Lancaster strikes me as someone obviously lives in England he's spent his time now in Dublin as well but probably wants to taste a bit of different cultures different countries this is a perfect opportunity to do it um, you'd be concerned the fact that they've already lost Felipe Contopomi and Dennis Alimi who were fairly big at mammoth losses not to overstate it but and then when you look at Leo Cullen being out of contract next summer as well kind of adds to the concern I mean from the Leinster coaching perspective now nothing is set in stone because um, if Lancaster leaves then the the focus comes on Cullen and will he stay as well look every chance he does but he's a titan loss Stuart Lancaster and, yeah. and, and you, can't, you, can't, you can't blame him either he's been there since 2016 he's, he's done a good stint with Leinster so uh, more power to him but obviously from a Leinster perspective it's terrible news he said like obviously he had a monster knock on, on Leinster's culture and Irish rugby's culture as well like you mentioned yeah. Liam obviously he will be bringing some of that uh, to Munster no doubt and I'm sure that like all the players that have been involved at Leinster over the last number of years who have then been involved in Ireland will have brought that culture there as well like I mean I think that it can't be uh, overestimated the impact that he would have had even outside directly of his, of his role. So I do think that there is... Uh, there's obviously a huge benefit of have, having had somebody like that there for seven years and the the impact that they have. But obviously, certainly losing them is a big um, a big blow. There has to be a knock-on, I would think, on on the Irish entire Irish rugby scene. He'd been involved in conversations for years about, like, the last few years, like, you know, would he take up a role with Ireland at some point? Is yeah. there, like, a, a more... Is there a different role for him within the IRFU where he can sort of spread that culture <laughs> a bit wider? Like, I mean, I don't know. That's the only reason I'm saying maybe the kite flying thing are the IRFU reading that this morning and going hang on hang on yeah we'll sort out a new oh, contract oh, yeah yeah let's sit down we need to figure this thing out because you know certainly listen to him over the last few years and as you say he he presented a show for us here mm. at Leaders Questions with Stuart Lancaster for a couple of years and like we would have obviously got to know him a little bit and he seemed very settled yeah. you know family life and obviously maybe the family have got a little bit older and maybe that opens up opportunities mm. for, for it in itself but I do think like uh, to quote a great man where do we go from here is definitely uh, an interesting one and you you talked about like you know the people that are out of contract and mm. where this where ultimately the the club do go from here I think that um one of the other things, obviously, is Johnny Sexton is near in the finish line. And, yeah. you know, when you talk about people that are driving the culture and voices within that dressing room, I think that, like, that obviously has to be brought into account as well. And Leo Cullen has suggested, surprisingly, the other week that maybe it isn't the end of Johnny Sexton as a player, which I thought was kind of interesting enough. Is there some... He, he himself is on the record as saying that he wants out. You know, when he's done, I don't want to get involved in coaching, I'm going to go and do something else, I want to get away from rugby. Yeah. I mean this suddenly creates an opportunity that might be right at the end of his career that for somebody who, you know, the intellect, the experience, the, you know, cultures that he's been involved in in those dressing rooms over the, over the last while, yeah. um, it wouldn't have been how they planned it, but now that the opportunity comes up, coach Johnny Sexton, <laughs> you know, listen, come in, give us three years while you're, you know, all that intellect of rugby now is, is in your brain. Yeah, and I feel it's, it's, easy, it's easy for players to say while they're still playing that when they retire I don't want to be involved in rugby anymore, I want to just leave the game. But yeah. then when you actually leave the game, there can be the little bit of grow that returns and you can miss it a little bit. Um, so, you know, from Johnny's perspective, he says he doesn't want to be involved in the game. That remains to be seen after he hangs up the boots for, for real. But 
Ah, like Johnny could step in there, no bother. But I mean, Lancaster is obviously has the experience. He's been there, done that. Mm. Um, like, does, does does Johnny have to cut his teeth somewhere else in the coaching world before he comes back to back to back to Leinster? I don't know. Um, like he would be, he'd be a coach you'd listen to. I think he'd be. I think there's you could create a role from there that that leans on the lack of experience that he would have as a coach. Yeah. But also, anybody you ever listened to who's been in a dressing room will tell you, I, do, I like it, it. He may choose to never want to do anything about coaching, but it does seem from anybody who's played with him that they would say that that's that that uh, that's there. Now yeah. it hasn't worked out for others. No, true. you know, like you know, risk, we always go back to the Roy Keane example, but it didn't a great player doesn't always make a great coach. No, I, and I'd like to I'd like to see Johnny first write the book when he when he retires. I'd like mm. I'd like to read the book. Has he not written the, one already? I think he might have written he? one, but maybe you're slightly you know, like, compromised when you're still you, playing. You definitely are, and, and you know the, the, the post retirement book is always the one that you can talk about the Raj the Raj rivalry and all the the different facets of his career over the years. Um, like. It, Obviously, Johnny's career is building up now to the Rugby World Cup next year. You'd imagine thereafter, yeah. uh, the 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 time of retirement will be will be upon him. Very interesting to listen to Andy Dunn last night on, on Wednesday at Rugby talking about Kieran Frawley mm. and the uh, the emerging talent trip to South Africa and how his conspiracy theory was that it could be a uh, almost a test run for Frawley to see how he deals with the three tests mm. leading the team um, because obviously the, there is the issue of, of Johnny's backup for the World Cup if he did get injured um, you know he, he needs to have that uh, backup available so yeah some, some interesting stuff in the rugby last night but yeah Johnny Sexton the coach I, I can see it Johnny Sexton becoming a lion was the name <laughs> of the book riveting it Sorry, says the quote right. on the front of it of course yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> which uh, is always a good uh, which is always a good setup. Um <laughs> so yeah look we'll uh, we will see how all that plays out and I mean if Jerry Thorny in the Irish Times is correct this morning it's been reported and picked up in some of the other papers then as well then that yeah it feels like more than rumours doesn't it yeah. Yeah, yeah. OTBM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effort that's finished to your day here's what's coming up between now and 10 this morning we'll have Jonathan Wilson football writer uh, on in the next 15 minutes or so and we're going to talk all things rugby there's so much to get our teeth into it with Jonathan around that and if you've any questions in relation to it um, do fire them into us Philippe Beauclair some interesting developments in the world of French uh, rugby and the French Football Federation specifically uh, over the last few days too we'll talk to him about that Ashling O'Reilly's in Dromoland for the uh, KPMG Women's Irish Open this week and we're going to get um, Ashling's preview for you a little bit later in the show uh, we'll have the sports pages with uh, JD at 20 to 9 and uh, you had to be there Michael Verney is in the hot seat this week and he what a list that he's got of five events that uh, he's been at over the last number of years um, some surprising and some not surprising not that surprising and very surprising that there's one sport particularly that doesn't get included yeah uh, and also big news from from your own county last night the ratification yeah, Adrian is in from Westmeath Big developments. Uh, you know, all, all the big counties now have uh, have their managerial positions filled. Shane, I think is how we can look upon this one. There's actually three. Is it three division one? Well, teams Donegal, of course. Donegal, yeah. Roscommon as well. Have Rossi, yet to, yeah. So, um, uh, I think it was it was more straightforward from Westmead's point of view. I don't think they were actually going to really go in, in any other direction. To be honest, like I think no. that the, the continuity. We were chatting obviously to Jack Cooney a few weeks ago, and he was yeah. talking about that continuity. But we were trying to like get him to endorse, and he basically did he endorse. Basically didn't did he? It was like Desi and John. John yeah, we sent John Keener. John Kane, uh, John Keane, I think. Yeah, I know the yeah, locals Keane, yeah. in Westmeath have different uh, hybrid pronunciations. <laughs> let them out the locals do, just not me. Is that? that yeah, well, saying? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so Desi Dolan has been confirmed. Um, she's just waking up to it this morning as the new Westmeath manager. He doesn't come with a huge amount of experience of that role specifically. He obviously has had the year under Jack Cooney. He has previously been a player selector under his own brother with Gary Castle when they went on to win the uh, Westmeath Senior Football Championship a couple of years ago, and interestingly with John Keane as coach of the team mm-hmm. as well. And it does seem like that's the 
vibe here Desi manager like almost in that Clive Woodward yeah. role of like you know being chief operations director or whatever yeah. and then you have um, John Keane sort of doing the coaching but it does seem as if there's going to be other others who've just been in the in the backroom Cooley team now backroom, yeah, yeah. who will come over but there's no more sort of confirmations of that just yet and I think there's there there will be excitement in the county about mm. it like he is obviously himself and John Keane are two of the greatest players yeah. we've ever had like you know the maybe a couple of other names you'd stick in the list but there's not many um, two absolute legends of the county it doesn't necessarily given the conversation we just have to make you an amazing coach but I do think that um, there will be excitement about it I, you know you, the continuity I think is really important because like, yeah. I think that obviously they'd struck upon something last year that worked for them and they got a bit of rub of the green and they got the run in the Talton Cup and all that helped um, we just don't know yet what type of manager uh, Desi Dolan is and that's probably the biggest question mark about it I think yeah I think players like continuity and uh, obviously Desi brings that the only concern I'd have and probably anyone would have is that lack of experience like he's only had one year as a selector and the fact that they're in the Sam Maguire now next year adds a bit of pressure as well um, obviously the Leinster Championship you, you go as far as you can uh, and the Championship this year will be interesting to see how Desi gets on but yeah like Good to see Westmead acting so fast. Like three and a half weeks is pretty quick. Yeah. Obviously, when it's done in house, like interested. Uh, even when we were speaking to Jack Cooney, the fact that he was the first within Westmead manager since 1990, and now all of a sudden yeah. you have one straight away afterwards. Yeah. Eleven a run of eleven managers of a non-native. Yeah, but then if, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So it's well, it obviously worked. It, it worked broke, on the Cooney. If it's broke, oh sorry, in that instance, okay, I'm with you. Yeah. I'm more reflecting on the not not all of the previous thirty no, years, of course. for sure, but. But uh, I'd, I'd be, yeah, like, it appears now to get a job in inter-county management, you just need to get into the media first, get your name out there. Kevin, yeah. Kevin McStay did it, Colm O'Rourke did it. Um, I know Desi had, had left Orti slightly before he, he confirmed this uh, appointment, but it appears to be put your face on the, on the wall and you get a job. Like, it, yeah. it, 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 there's probably... It's probably it does your does your profile no harm doing a bit of media work um, and obviously county boards then see people who are more recognisable coming forward for interviews um, like even interested to read we, we mentioned Oshin McConville's comments yesterday in his podcast talking about he felt Ray Dempsey was the better choice for the Mayo job ahead of Kevin McStay but then when you have Kev, when Kevin McStay has the the media profile and the backroom team with him as well it's hard to it's hard to go against that so it's it's kind of similar with Desi he has the profile he was in he was the continuity there as well so it can only help he'd been long trying to get the Mayo job obviously next day and it kind of felt as if time was coming and interestingly Desi's dad had been a long time trying to get the Westmead job <laughs> without ever getting it he'd managed uh, Leitrim and he would have managed Gary Castle and yeah, yeah, yeah. clubs under his belt as well and never never got it like there was times where it seemed like the obvious opportunity and that's an interesting wrinkle in this entire story as well It the pundit one is interesting because like it feels like at the rate they're hoovering up RT pundits out there Marty Morrissey is like odds on to get the common job it's like well, uh, come, come, come to Monon if oh, you want Marty hang around long we're, enough we're, yeah. struggling, we're struggling a bit for, uh, for people up there it, but it, it raises an interesting question the fact that Westmead can get it done so quickly but then you see counties like Monaghan, Donegal and Roscommon struggling and they're I mean they're big jobs they're lucrative jobs in terms of profile Division 1 teams um, all with a chance you yeah. would argue of winning their province as well next, next season so it, it kind of just goes to show how time consuming and just all encompassing the intercounty job is now mm. and, and Desi's obviously taken a couple of weeks now to think about it and, and, and um, I'd say it took him about four seconds probably much, you know, the, but then you have to slash debate the, the CV in there it's nice being in the back room where you can kind of hide, like Stephen Rochford has learned from it he, like, he obviously had the pressure of the Mayo job went into the Donegal back room now at the Mayo back room he probably likes that lack of being yeah. the main man yeah. the main focus so now Desi probably had to that's probably the only thing he had to consider was do I want the 
this serious attention of being the, the number one man. Um, and clearly he does. I predict uh, Desi is going to win Leinster and could well, well win. Desi could well win uh, win, win the All Ireland next year. Desi Dolan. <laughs> leave that. Leave that. You're going to have to clarify. Sorry, I'm here. Yourself. Yeah. Um, couple of comments in. Mark Dunning. Did I sleep through Thursday or is Adrian doing two days this week? Double bubble. Much the latter, yeah. yeah and yeah. Uh, it's obvious, as another YouTube commenter, Raj to Leinster, match made in heaven. <laughs> I mean, I like where you're coming from. I just don't ever really see that happening. Mm. Um, I presume, obviously, there was a big deal made yesterday, but they, they went all in, I presume, with you. Happy Did they? Oh, jeez. <laughs> I presume, I presume you know they didn't miss it yesterday. Did fully miss it, as you well know, Adrian. That's why, obviously. Come on now, come on out of that. Um, Jesus, I mean, I went to colleagues. You would have thought some of the lads in the office take the, their birthday off, so this doesn't happen. Um, I managed to avoid. Really? The, well, I've heard a couple. Of, I won't name. I won't name I'd names. Like to but, um, it, uh, I avoided the entire day bringing up the birthday yesterday, and I came back into the office um, after getting the hair chopped, and came in, and Phil Egan says to me. She should get that quiet. I don't know how we found out. Yeah. But uh, at the end of the day, he found out anyway. And um, good yeah, man. What age you? Twenty nine now. Twenty nine. Last year, the twenties. Yeah, right, good man. So, uh, any advice? Any advice? Well, uh, my twenty nine, unfortunately, was so long ago. Shane, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I can't even remember it. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, keep on doing what you're doing. That's just no. keep keep at it. Yeah. Yeah. Twenty nine is an exciting age, I think. Um, really. Oh, no, I'm just trying to feel better, to be honest. How do you think about that? What's the excitement? Uh, prime your life. Right? Yeah, really? Yeah, if, nah, definitely not. <laughs> definitely not. It doesn't feel like your sporting Your sporting career is sort of, surely, like, this is a signifier that it's, you know... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're into the, you're into the at least the autumn, I mean, if not the winter. It's funny, because, I, like, I, I used to play, or I still play soccer for Monantown FC, my local team at home, and started playing for them when I was 17. I kind of did three or four years, yeah. moved up to Dublin and, and left it for a while. Moved back uh, last year to the team, and <clears throat> I'm playing again this year, captaining them this year, oh, and I'm one of the older one of the older lads in the team now, which is, right. I was training last night looking around, and you're seeing lads who are 17, 18, and you're thinking, Jesus, this is yeah. this is a wake-up call. Because yeah. you still feel but relatively you're young. Peak, you pick your, what peak, did you say? I actually feel 32 or 3, I think I'm yet to reach the peak. Right, in physical. Wow. I'm talking physical peak here in terms okay. of 5k times and uh, triathlon efforts yeah. and that sort of thing well there was a time a few years ago where we used to look about, oh here's the young buck like a gazelle sort of out leading the way around the triathlons but yeah, we might have yeah. to revisit that now given that you're you're pushing on a bit yeah, 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 um, exactly. the other thing was that happened over the last 24 hours was obviously after your PR push if you engaged mm. the, the uh, PR community yesterday to get your um, get the message out there that you'd been you were joining out to AM on a full time base there was a clamour from the audience to was there, get yeah? to know just who is Shane Hannan getting to know you getting to know all about you getting to like you getting to hope you like me getting uh, to know you I, I don't like you know I'm, I'm a man who I don't really get nervous nervous wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be a major thing but um it's usually because you know you like to be prepared have your research done yeah. whether it's life itself or, or work um I don't know what's. I don't really know what's about to happen. Well, we've ten questions with Shane Hannan. The audience have demanded it, and uh, one person know, maybe demanded. Uh, it's probably you as well. It's so. Pretty much me. Yeah. Uh, um, we we got to figure out who exactly who you are because we you know we fast track some of this process. That you know people are going to spend the next six twelve months watching you, getting to know about what you're up, what mm. you're about and beyond. But we kind of want to fast track a lot of that and just give people a bit of a look behind the curtain. I've only been you're working right with the ball for, for five years. I know. So, yeah, 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 yeah. But have, have you ever done this before? Uh, no, nope, never done this. Go. Certainly not on air. Ten questions with Shane Hannan. What is your main sport? follow when you're out and about and somebody says oh yeah so what's your what's your main sport oh 
like um, I can't say three obviously I can't say three sports can I no 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 it's what's your one, main one sport the, the, oh Jesus right well soccer Gaelic football and um, snooker are the, the short list um, <laughs> I'll probably go with uh, I'll go with soccer right yeah is this quick fire or do you want me to elaborate? Oh, no, elaborate, elaborate yeah, on. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, we've two and a half hours for this lot, so away you go. Probably my most enjoyable sport to play. Uh, I like playing it. Um, football man. Yeah. Not, not quite to the ilk of Nathan Murphy. Well, and, we and let the guys, audience decide that, yeah. They can decide that. But uh, yeah, I, I, would say, I would say soccer has, was, my, was my first love. Used to uh, get the old fella to buy the Irish Daily Star on Tuesday. Uh, no, every weekday, in fact. And I go down to his room and read the, read the soccer section of the newspaper right. to myself. Um, you know, a la Jimmy McGee. So it, that was the that was the. Is that what he used to do? Is he, he used to apparently to run around the fields and coolly commentating to himself, right? Like pretending cows and sheep were were players. So uh, that's the Jimmy you never, McGee. You never went that far. What's uh, the best sporting event that you've ever been to? Oh Jesus! See, this is why I should have had these questions in advance. No, I can, no, I can no, at least no. think of spoil the fun. Uh, the Crucible World Snooker Championship um, that's pretty good yeah. one of the semi-finals in I can't remember who was playing it was in 2017 and 18 I think I was over um, but I mean just the Crucible is the greatest cauldron in sport the amphitheatre I think it's only maybe a thousand capacity um, but it's just so intimate and like I know people say and, and they say on TV you know you, you could hear a pin drop you literally there is no quieter place to be than the Crucible when a shot is about to be played uh, and especially when you're in the front row of those press seats you really Try not to move whatsoever, mm-hmm. um, but just the atmosphere. I've never seen Ronnie O'Sullivan, unfortunately, play on the bays at uh, the Crucible. I've seen him play a couple of exhibitions and that sort of thing, and obviously sat down with him a few times. But um, so yeah, a world a world championship semi final, where, where you don't know who played. So we're getting a good sense. Mark a good, Williams, Mark Williams, good was sense, the year yeah. Williams won. Yeah, yeah. Fontaine's DC or Big Tom? <laughs> I I know Connor Curley. The uh, guitarist for Fontaine's DC, reasonably well. say for the mainliners there, but yeah, go ahead, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and he's a he's a fellow club man with myself, Man on Harps. He was a great hurler back in the day as well. Um, year behind me in school. Big Tom is obviously a legend. Was a legend. Um, we have a drum set in our garage that uh, Big Tom's band oh, used right. to used to use. Our babysitter had it. Uh, he was part mainliners. of band years ago. The mainliners. So I'm gonna up, I'm gonna up for Fontaine's DC. Oof. Show, go, my, show my youth. Go to takeaway. Uh, Oh Jesus Chipper All day long And What are you having? Like it's a chicken fillet burger Lettuce and mayo And the chip Right the, the important thing about the bag of chips Is it has to be Doused In vinegar Oof. I mean like the, 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 the bag has to be Dripping all over your leg As you walk out of the As you walk out of the shop <laughs> uh, The Monte Carlo in Monaghan Is, uh, is it's, it's won a few it's awards the for, be, is it? It's the place the to be for chips. I brought Kevin Gaban to the Monte Carlo Oh once. yeah He was up for pints he of Monaghan He gave it his seal of approval Yeah yeah um, You're a tattoo kind of guy Yeah What's your favourite And what's next Favourite tattoo uh, Got ten tattoos um, Believe it or not I got the la- my most recent one Last week Oh, which right. is the the plough? Do you know the, the constellation, the Big Dipper, the plough? Right. Um, has a couple of meanings. Um, so it's obviously big space geek, as you well know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, it's um, James Connolly will be one of my heroes. Both of his parents were from County Monaghan. Mm. Um, was reading books about him recently, and that uh, that plough symbol representing, I guess it was it was on one of the flags hung above Dublin during the Easter Rising. I think there was three flags held above. One was the tricolour, one just red Irish Republic, and one was the plough. So. That's has a couple of meanings right. but uh, I'd say the, the favourite one would be uh, the last man to walk on the moon Captain Gene Cernan who I interviewed in 
2013. I, I set myself when he dies, mm. I'm going to get his handwriting tattooed. Oh, well. uh, so after he interviewed me, he sent me a photograph of him on the moon and said, Touche, and it's our destiny to explore. So we've got that tattooed here. Class. In his handwriting. So you, you've been in the pool with me as we uh, tried to explore so you've seen, You've seen a few of them, but uh, good, yeah, that'll, be, the, that'll right. be number one. Let's fly through the rest of these. Yeah. Uh, Mark Hughes or Nudie Hughes? Ah, Nudie Hughes. Uh, mastermind specialist topic? The Apollo moon landings. 1969 to 1972. Wow. Well, we, we will put that to the test or not. Read, listen, or watch? Uh, read. Uh, Favourite score of any sport at any time? Favourite score? Yeah. Just scoreline? No, score, like as in goal or point or... Oh, favourite score. Um, that would probably be it, it, between two. Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, 2-1 Bayern Munich, slid on my knees with my dad. Probably the moment I fell in love with football. Um Dad started crying, I think, if my memory serves me correctly. Okay. And Dad had said just beforehand, you, don't worry, Shane, United always score. This is just before the Sheringham goal. And uh, sure enough, Clive Tilsley sure said enough. the same thing. Uh, the other one is Conor McManus from the sideline. Healy Park Oma um, in the Ulster Championship a number of years ago, 2018 was it? Where it was just the greatest score in Gaelic football I've ever seen in person. I was behind the goal at a perfect angle and uh, yeah, his reaction, the fist pump afterwards, that's my two favourite scores I'd say. And finally, you've mentioned you're a, spa- a space geek there. Fly to the moon or Monaghan to win an All-Ireland three in a row? Oh, jeez. Three in a row. Three in a row? Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you know what? We're floating around on a ball of rock through space at the minute, Adrian, faster than the speed of a bullet. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm on in three in a row, what <laughs> No, I, I think space is bigger than all of us. You know, the big questions, the philosophical questions, is there, is there life out there? Yeah. Are we alone in the universe? Yeah. Uh, so I think to walk on the moon, or even fly around the moon, and to come back with that big overview effect and, and be a changed person. Yeah. But what uh, about Monaghan winning three in a row? Like... I mean, so you're just you're choosing the selfish thing. No, I get that. That's that's a good insight, a good window into well, who Shane Hannan we've, we've waited this long. We can wait till after I'm, uh, I'm long dead and gone for, for our first All-Ireland if we want. So, yeah, fly to the moon for me. We have more uh, questions coming in, and we'll come back to those um, anon. But that was enjoyable, Shane. Good man. I think we got to know you a little bit more. Slightly Not more, all of yeah. it that great, I won't lie, but, uh, you know, it's <laughs> warts and all. That's what we're at. Uh, baby we're steps, about baby here. steps. It's five to eight. Uh, you're watching OTBM, and we have loads to come on the show today. Um, and uh, we'll come to all of that anon. But right now, we're going to turn our attention to football, I'm glad to say that the uh, football writer Jonathan Wilson is on the line. Morning, Jonathan. Morning, how are you doing? Very good, thanks, William, for uh, for joining us this morning. Um, one, obviously, to talk about England, a uh, couple of games upcoming, um, an interesting time for in- to talk English football, and obviously ahead of the World Cup. Um, talk to us first of all, maybe just about the like, obviously, the rocky patch that's come for England in the recent uh, Nations League matches. Um, Gareth Southgate has had the appropriately labelled dreaded vote of confidence uh, from the FA in the meantime as well. Uh, two really tough games to come now. Um, effectively, I mean, I guess their final comp- competitive warm-up games uh, for the World Cup. What's the mood music around Gareth Southgate at the minute? Uh, I, I don't think he's, he's under pressure as such. In that I, I have absolutely no doubt that he will be England's coach at the World Cup. Um, but there's definitely a, a negativity there which hasn't been there uh, in the six years he's had the job. Uh, and I, 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 personally, I find that really, really weird. Uh, I don't think he's perfect by any means. I think there's certain things you can criticise him for. But fundamentally, he's taken England to two of the five semi-finals they've ever reached. He's only lost three out of 41 games in either the World Cup or the European Championship um, he's England have only ever won 14 knockout games in major tournaments he's responsible for five of them so his his level of achievement stands up against any previous manager 
but those Nations League games in the summer were were hugely disappointing. Um, and the, to lose four nil at home against anybody when you're England is is a humiliation. To do it against Hungary um, is, is particularly so. I think there's all kinds of reasons for those results. I think everybody was exhausted in June. I think nobody particularly wanted to play those games. Um, the Nations League, personally, I think has been a very, very good thing. Maybe this edition of it, because of COVID, because of the compacted nature of the season, because of the World Cup coming in in, you know, in the winter, which has compressed the calendar even further, they feel a bit more of an imposition than the first two editions did. So, the, the, yeah, there's a there's an unease about Southgate, which, which hasn't been there. I don't think it's anything like what we've seen for previous England managers. And... I, th- I think the moment it might lead to leaving the job is December, not now. Uh, obviously, Jonathan, the fact that uh, you know England will lose or will be relegated from their Nations League group if they lose tomorrow night adds to the pressure. But do you think we'd be even talking about Southgate being under pressure if this wasn't England and this wasn't the English media uh, speaking to him in press conferences? Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of... I just don't know what people expect. Um, I think what he's done has been... Extraordinary. I think he's been by far the best English manager of England manager of my lifetime. Um, but that, that 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 arrogance, which is always there in English football, which which yeah, I think probably had to to an extent be, been been dampened down after the the pretty horrendous performances in the World Cup in 2014 and in the year 2016. I think that's back. Uh, I, I found that even the attitude around the Euros is very very strange that. Um, yeah, England got through the group comfortably enough, and there was a lot of oh, this is really boring. They're playing negative football. You still think it's a group? Just get through it. That's all it's there for. Um, and this sort of idea, oh, it's a really easy group. I mean, they literally started against Croatia, the team who beat them in the World Cup semi-final. It's, that's clearly not an easy game. But England won it. So, but rather than giving them credit for that, there was a sort of well, of course they should beat Croatia. And then you know, even against Germany, it's oh, it's a weak Germany. England just beaten Germany in a major championship in a knockout game. You know that that hasn't happened since 1966 to win in, to beat Germany in a knockout game. Uh, and then they beat Ukraine four 0 I mean, you know, what what else do people want? Uh, so yeah, I, I've I've sort of found the whole uh, nature of the discussion, but both depressing in in, in sort of there's just sort of this sense of oh we're bored of this we need a change, but also just totally unrealistic. That yeah, you, no team doesn't matter how talented you are, how many great players you have, goes out in a major tournament and wins every game four, five, six nil. And it's not as if England have got a history of doing that in the entire history of football. So yeah, I, personally, I think England should have yeah, Sensati should have been widely praised for getting to the final of the Euros rather than this sort of sense of underlying resentment. And yeah, it's not even like they lost the final. I think the things went wrong in the final. But they drew it and lost on penalties, which, you know, uh, in a previous age, that might have been seen as a great achievement. There, there was that four-game slog in June as well. And, and I guess the way it ended in Molyneux with that 4-0 defeat by Hungary wasn't great. Um, like, is, is Southgate nearly a, a victim of the nature of international windows here? Like, that, that was June. This is September. It's been three months. You know, it's not like the club game where you can, you can address, perform pretty quickly. The fact is, when you have a couple of bad games in a row at international level, that just hangs over until the next window. Yeah, well, I think there's there's two slightly separate aspects there with the calendar. So the first is those games in June, nobody wanted to be there. But yeah, journalists didn't want to be there. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, yeah. I confess, I barely paid those games any attention. Yeah, I, I watched them, but I wasn't sort of, um, yeah, reading reams about them because everybody was knackered after, uh, you know, a very very intense period of football with the you know the, the season before that that season having been sort of lumped into the beginning of it. Everybody was knackered. The players were clearly knackered. I, I think to read anything into those games um, would, would you know. I think you've got to put them in, in, in the context that they came in. So Southgate pays for that, that the players really were exhausted and want to be there. But then we've got this, this sort of added problem of the World Cup being in November. So in a sense, those games came at the worst possible time because there are only these two matches coming up to to get over that and go into the World Cup. And England could play really well against Italy and Germany and lose both games. And so suddenly they're going to the World Cup Having failed to win the six previous games, and I think the nature of this World Cup—I don't know—I don't know if people have sort of really realised how ludicrous it is that you know, I look back at the the five previous World Cups this century, and the gap between the Champions League final and the start of the World Cup—I uh, think the average is twenty days, and that's the Champions League final. So domestic season would have finished a week or ten days before that. So a lot of players effectively will have had a month between the end of their season and the start of the World Cup. This time, we got seven days between the last Premier League fixtures and the start of the World Cup. So if you're, um, uh, I think, Ecuador are the team who are going to be worst affected. So Mo- uh, Moises Caicedo will probably play for Brighton on that Sunday. Um, and uh, Estupinian also for, for, for Brighton. And then a week later, they're going to be playing against Qatar in the first game of the World Cup. Well, a week is is no time at all. Um, so there's, there's absolutely no preparation time. And I, I think you can see a parallel with what happened to the Cup of Nations this year, where because of various COVID regulations, uh, a lot of teams only got together five, six, seven days before the Cup of Nations began. And those first, that first round of group games at the Cup of Nations were incredibly boring, incredibly negative, incredibly cautious, because... Nobody is properly prepared, and every single coach is just like, don't lose the first game before we've got ourselves set up. So those first eight matches, there was an average of 1.12 goals. The next, you know, every, every game after that, there was an average of 2.08 goals per game. So it, it almost doubled. And I think we'll probably see something pretty similar at the World Cup, that first round of games. Nobody will quite be ready. And so the level of football and, and, and the, the level of ambition in those first games will be pretty limited. One of the other areas of pressure, obviously, coming in Garatalka is the is that some of the more experienced players that you would think that in the context of everything you've just said, uh, given timelines, that you would probably look to try and lean on a little bit more have been out of form or, you know, not playing many games for the club, or in some cases, uh, both of those things. How does that impact um, when you start to look at a starting 11 for the next couple of games and into the World Cup? Does he, does he try to rely on some of the experience that haven't been playing or is this a bit of a blank canvas and we're going to see some uh, freshening up of that team? I think it's going to be a mix of the two. I mean, uh, this, clearly Jordan Pickford's injured. He, he won't play. So he, there's going to be effectively a runoff for the second and third goalkeeping places. Nick Pope, I, I think, is probably pretty much nailed on for second place. But whether it's Henderson or Ramsdale for the third place, I think that'll be decided. Uh, Eric Dyer, who's been out of the picture for 18 months, has been in great form this season. I think for me, he becomes the first choice uh, of a you know, central of the three centre-backs. Um, so he presumably will will start both games to get get him back in. Uh, you, you then think, well, there's a bit of an issue on the left side of the, of the three centre backs, and I think both these games 
we probably will see a back three for the bulk of them because I think Southgate's policy is he plays that back three with the two holding players in games where he, he doesn't expect England to dominate the ball comfortably. When England can be relied upon to dominate the ball, so for instance, that first game of the World Cup against Iran, you would expect England to have you know, 60%, 65% possession. I think that will be a 4-3-3. But obviously against Germany and Italy, they're going to be those games where England have to defend a bit more. So I think it will, at least from the start, probably be a back three in these two games. So the left side of defender, ideally, I think would be Harry Maguire. But Maguire has been out of form for you know a year, 18 months. And so then you think, well, do you play Maguire to get him some minutes because he's not playing for Manchester United to try and get him back into the into the swing of things? Uh, I think he and Dyer we've seen work well together before. The Dyer, I think, is, is very good at organising, and Maguire probably is a player who needs to be to be directed. Or do you look at the possible replacements, Margehi, uh, Figai Tomori, both of whom are quite inexperienced? And that I think is a really difficult decision as to, as to whether you try and give experience and, and test out the players who could come in, or whether you try and play your your, your 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 senior player back into form. And I think that kind of question is popping up all over the place. So the forward line, I think, is pretty much, yeah, it will be Kane and Sterling and one other. I think that's that's not really a problem. But there's issues right across the defence that the wing-backs, you know, Kyle Walker hasn't started the season particularly well. Ben Chilwell's barely been playing. So do you play Trippier on the right or do you play him on the left? Uh, do you play Reese James as a right-sided centre-back or do you play Stones and play... Um, Reese James is the right wing back. Then at the back of midfield, Declan Rice hasn't had a great start of the season. I think he's nailed on to start. Ideally, probably one of Calvin Phillips alongside him because Calvin Phillips has the best range of passing of players in that position. Um, I think he, his capacity to get the ball forward quickly is something that no other England player gives you from that position, but he's injured. Mm. So then Jordan Henderson, who's been injured for Liverpool, was a late call to the squad as he recovered quicker than expected from injury. Do you put him in? Or do you say, actually, we're going to go with something totally new and bring in Jude Bellingham, who I think has probably been the the best England midfielder on form so far this season, but isn't really that profile of holding player and probably would prefer the 4-3-3 that England may use against Iran, but probably won't use in these two warm-up games, or these two Nations League games. Uh, Harry Maguire is a, a fascinating case study, Jonathan. I mean, as you say, his form's been well. His form's been brutal, but obviously he hasn't been playing uh, to be brutal in recent weeks. Um, like Southgate has been a man who's always spoke about the, the you know the importance of club form when you come into an international duty, and yet, as you say, Maguire's one of the most senior players in that squad. He gets on very well, you know, with, with Stones, with Dyer in the back. It, it would be very strange though for for a player not playing whatsoever at club level to be starting World Cup games for a team like England? Uh, it would be, but I, I, I guess um, sometimes needs must. And I think the the, the, the thing you can say in defence of Maguire is, apart from that Denmark game, when he was sent off and was dreadful in the half hour before he was sent off, uh, he's been pretty good for England all the way through. And I think he's a better player on the left of the back three than he is in the back four. Um, I think he remains very dominant in the air. So if he has Eric Dyer directing him, um, sorry, that sounds patronising, I don't mean it to be patronising, but somebody else taking on that, that burden of, of organisation I think suits him. I think also you've got to think of the attacking threat he brings. So he's been a regular goal scorer under Southgate because he is so good in the air and set plays have been an England strength under Southgate. So I think Southgate would probably be loath to, to, to lose that. I also think Maguire's just one of those players who, who other players like and when you're cooped up, 26 of you in a hotel for, for a month, 
that is not an insignificant aspect. So, I mean, Maguire, I think, has to be in the assuming he's fit, has to be in the squad. If he's in the squad, you don't want him to be a dead weight. So, therefore, you need him playing. And so, I think probably at least the Italy game, he he will start. And as long as he's not disastrous, he probably will start that game against Iran in the World Cup. Having said that, if it's a back four, maybe he is a man to stand down. But the first game we play a back three at the World Cup, I would expect him to be to be in. You mentioned Jordan Henderson returning to the to the squad there from injury, and and I know Calvin Phillips has been a man that that's really excelled at international level under Southgate, and and has got a lot of game time. He's only played the minute for for Man City since joining from Leeds uh, this summer. Obviously, been curtailed by injuries, but is this an opportunity? massively come knocking for Jordan Henderson to kind of maybe get that place back ahead of the World Cup? Uh, yeah, I think I think it is. Um, and I think the fact that he is so... It would be very easy for him not to turn up for this squad uh, to say, I'm just getting over my injuries. But he's clearly desperate to get back in and wants to prove himself and prove his fitness and, and prove that that partnership with Rice can, can function, can work. And I think Henderson is probably a better passer than people give him credit for. Uh, but I think he's also, and you see this with, with with Liverpool, what a great leader he is, that he he talks constantly. Um, so low Harry Kane is the notional captain. I think it's yeah, Henderson is a sort of spiritual captain, if you like. He's the one who sort of um, keeps everyone on their toes, keeps the shape right. And in England, probably need that because the, the nature of international teams is you, you obviously don't train together as much as club sides. And therefore, the pressing is not quite as instinctive as it will be at club level. And having somebody there organising it, and the fact Henderson does it at Liverpool, the team who went on song are the best pressing team probably in the world, that's a very useful asset to have. Calvin Phillips's quick forward passing is a very useful asset to have. But yeah, I think if Henderson plays one and a half of these two games and plays well, that probably gets him in for the World Cup, given that that Phillips isn't isn't playing Manchester City at the moment, even when he is fit. Those uh, those forward options. I mean, you mentioned Kane and Sterling, Jonathan. Just looking at some of the the backup options. And granted, Marcus Rashford isn't in in, in this squad. He has a slight uh, knock, but he's been in good form for, for United so far this season. Like looking at some of the maybe the other options. You have Ollie Watkins. I know Callum Wilson and Calvert Lewin are both injured at the minute as well. Tammy Abraham is an option uh, further down the pecking order. Uh, like uh, beyond Kane and Sterling, who's who's your third nailed on attacking option for England at the minute? Well, I, I think um, you got who, who's back up for Kane. I think it's the first question there, and that seems to me a shootout between Tammy Abraham and Ivan Tony. I think it's significant. Ivan Tony's been called up to this squad. I think it's rightly has been because I think he's been excellent this season. So, yeah, I was trying to pick my, my twenty six, and I think it's possible that both Abraham and Tony could go because you might think, well, there could be games where with fifteen twenty minutes to go, England need a goal, and you want to play with two strikers. And if you know if if one of them's injured, you, you know you you need a third one. So I think it's possible Abraham and Tony both go, uh, but really I think it is a shootout between them to be Kane's backup. You then have those that that sort of array of, of wide forwards or forwards who can come from deeper. And I think with Kane the, the way he drops off, you need players who can go beyond him, uh, which possibly counts against Phil Foden, brilliant brilliant footballer that he is. Um, so Sterling clearly is is at the forefront of that because he and Kane work so well together and he had such good Euros. Um, and then, I guess you're looking at something like Bukayo Saka, who, who, and Saka is, is incredibly useful because he can play both wing-back positions as well. So he, he offers you, you you cover all over. 
I'm slightly puzzled by Southgate's attitude to Jaden Sancho, not necessarily now, but he clearly didn't particularly rate him in the summer that when Sancho was in good form for Dortmund, he still wasn't the first choice for, for England. So there's something there that, that Southgate thinks he doesn't doesn't quite do that he needs. Um, and then I guess you've got Jack Grealish, who Southgate seems to like to use as a an impact player off a bench. And, and I, I, I get that. I, I see the logic of that. The, the, the Grealish's... Um, he, yeah, he, his dribbling ability is very, very useful in terms of coming on against tired limbs, yeah, beating a man, getting a call, possibly being fouled and getting a free kick or a penalty. We asked you at the start, uh, Jonathan, just about the general mood music around Gareth Southgate. And much as it is in any way possible to speak on behalf of an entire nation, uh, to wrap it, what's your expectation or what is the general expectation about how England can do at the World Cup? Uh, I mean, yeah, that, that, that's a question that's where you know, sort of realistic considerations almost don't exist. <laughs> um, I, I, I sort of, the older I get, the more disappointed I get in the world, in all honesty. Um, but, I, you know, there's one of, the, one of the problems with international football, uh, problems, so no, that's not, not fair. One of the uh, features of international football is a lot of people watch it who don't watch club football. And their expectations often seem totally unrealistic. Um, so I, I, I think they, when the World Cup starts, there will be a lot of people think England should win the World Cup. Um, they'll think, oh, well, the semi-finalists last time, got to the finals, obviously logical progression, so go semi-final, final, win it. Um, I think England can win the World Cup. Um, they're possibly in the best position to do well at the World Cup in my lifetime. But what's happened this year with those performances in, in June, with the injuries, with all the questions we've got now, I think there's an equal possibility that, that England could have a desperately bad World Cup. I also, that the group is almost as bad as it could possibly be in that it looks easy and it really isn't. That people will underestimate Iran and they will underestimate the USA and they will underestimate where all three of those are, are tricky games. And I, I think... Um, certainly when the draw was done, if you just averaged out the world ranking of each group, that group is, is I mean, it, it clearly isn't, but by world ranking, that group is the hardest group. Uh, so I, I worry that there will be um, a complacency about the group games that isn't justified and that even saying they get through with seven points, as they did in the Euros, there'll be a sense of, of anticlimax and, oh, this isn't quite good enough, we should be battling these teams which is totally unreasonable and unrealistic. Yeah, most of us are always destined to end up disappointment, uh, disappointed, uh, Jonathan, as you pointed out. Thanks a million. Enjoyed that. Cheers, thank you. Thanks a lot, Jonathan Wilson. Uh, right on all things uh, English football. You're watching OTBAM. It's gone uh, 17 minutes past eight on this Thursday morning. Delighted to have you with us. OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. We're going to be back after this uh, with the football, French football writer Philippe Auclair on some big stories in uh, French football. Talk to you after these. OTB AM OTB AM Thursday morning and uh, we're turning our attention out to French football and French football writer Philippe Auclair joins us on the line Morning Philippe Morning to you 
Thanks for taking our call. France's uh, sports ministry has ordered an investigation into allegations of sexual harassment and a toxic culture against its president. It seems there are several record, uh, cases been reported by Sofoot, the French football magazine, and the Federation saying uh, this week that they'll sue uh, Sofoot yep. for defamation. Where is it all at? And bring our uh, viewers who are unfamiliar with the story up to speed if you can. If I can, because it's a long story and it has a number of characters. And by the way, there are two things here. One of them is the allegations made by Sofoot, which is uh, basically the painted picture of a, uh, a French FA uh, in which basically anything goes. And from the top uh, to the bottom almost uh, with inappropriate behavior, to say the least, inappropriate texts, inappropriate um, well, yes, behavior of all kind towards, in particular, female members of the staff by a number of people high up in the French FA, including, of course, uh, the French FA president, Noël Legret, uh, who is now 80 years old, has been in place for, it seems, forever. Um, the most powerful man in French football, perhaps, and whose authority he's now... Uh, more than questioned. I don't think that he'll be able to uh, stay in place for very long, to be honest, now that the ministry has decided to take on the affair. Uh, and also, on top of that, there is what Sofut has, has printed, but there's also what uh, Josimar, uh, the Norwegian magazine, of which I have to say um, full uh, transparency here, I'm, I'm a contributor. Um, Romain Molina, the French investigative journalist, has published a absolutely harrowing uh, account of basically... Uh, years and years of silence around sexual abuse cases which were reported to the French FA and not passed on to the authorities. A very, very serious matter indeed. And I think the conjunction of those two things, basically media in France and in Norway, uh, putting all of this in the, in the open, is forcing the Ministry of Sports, who, to be honest, hadn't been made aware of, of what was going on, to look at it very uh, in greater depth and... Um, I think that a number of people are probably going to lose their positions, but it's a, a long overdue um, look at what is happening in the corridors of football power in France. And uh, believe me, what's happening there is not pretty. It's a very aggressive response from the Federation to say that they may sue yes. for defamation. An unusual response almost in some ways, Philippe, you would almost expect that they would, uh, even, even from a PR point of view, want to have an image of self-reflection here. Yes, and uh, I think it's a completely wrong miscalculation. Uh, I've read the article by Sofut again, by the way, this very morning, and I thought, okay, it was very punchy. Some of the things that they said were very incriminating. But looking at it, I'm wondering, is there anything really defamatory in that? I mean, the French defamation and libel laws are not quite the same as they would be in the United Kingdom, or I'm told in Ireland, where they're extraordinarily strict. Mm. and loaded towards the person who is the uh, target allegations in France, rather, rather be the opposite. Uh, when you think, for example, that um, a French website, Blast, was able to print out a claim that uh, the philosopher Bernard-Henri Lévy had taken something like 11 million uh, euros directly from the, from the Catalan, uh, was sued and won its trial, despite the fact of there having absolutely no proof that this had been the case, you think that the French FA, you would think twice about calling into question things, um, you know, such as uh, the testimonies which have been published by Sofoot, uh, the excerpts from telephone conversations that they've been quoting. It seems that they are on very solid ground here. And my reading of it is that they felt that they had no choice, no other choice this time than to react, because otherwise 
it was going to spread and spread and spread and it would become impossible to go any further. So in a way, perhaps it was a means to stop other media um, propagating what Sofut had been, uh, been writing. Because obviously it had been reported in many uh, major media, which Sofut is not. So it's a well-read, popular magazine, but it's not, uh, you know, like a François or Libération. Uh, I say François, not François, Le Monde or Libération, Le Figaro. It is a small publication, but the news was starting to be taken on by other media, much more important media, and put out in the open to the whole of the French public opinion. And I think that they decided, okay, we want to stop that, stop the rot right now, so we're going to sue for defamation, which means that other people who would want to quote from that piece might also find themselves in trouble and decide we're not covering this anymore. Well, this has badly, badly misfired, because now the dossier is with the minister, It's all over the front pages in France. I mean, French football is all over the front pages in France for all the wrong reasons at the moment, I'm afraid. Uh, Philippe, just just interesting to read some comments from Noël Agret um, earlier in the week when he was speaking to, to L'Equipe uh, about his future in the role. He was talking about, uh, you know, if my health remains stable, if I'm well, there's absolutely no reason for me to stop. I'm very good at my job and everyone likes me. I'm lucky to be appreciated. <laughs> But uh, like, he, ha he hasn't actually responded publicly to the accusations as of yet, has he? No, it hasn't. And I think that it's now a subjudice, the matter is subjudice, so it's a perfect means for them as well to, to stay silent about it, saying it's now, you know, it's, there's a defamation uh, action on, so therefore I, I cannot possibly comment on that. And um, as to the opinion he has of himself, he's, uh, it's his right prerogative to have it. I'm afraid that in France is perhaps the only one at the moment. Um, we, we will watch events and no doubt catch up with you on that again down the track. Talk to us about other, and uh, in the context of what we've just been speaking about, much less serious uh, uh, developments, but Kylian Mbappe's grip on French football is extending now to the French Football <laughs> Federation, it seems, this week. Uh, I read with, um, uh, I mean, I don't know what exactly my emotion was, but the, the possibility that KFC were going to sue the French Football Federation, potentially, although I see they've since uh, reversed out of that position yes. uh, for the uh, Mbappe's failure to endorse their, uh, their product. Um, where is this story? at the minute and how is it going to unfold? Um, well, I mean, the, the story is actually fascinating and it's actually a very important story. I, I know it might sound crazy when you think it's about fried chicken and a professional footballer. What's the point? No, the point is very serious that Kylian Mbappé uh, told the French Federation that he would not take part in the photo shoot which had been planned at the training camp. And the reason why he refused to take part in this photo shoot to start with was because his image rights were not respected and they, they, the French Federation was not um, dealing with the problem of image rights properly, which is a bigger issue, as you can understand. And there was panic, obviously, in the, um, in, the, in the French Federation camp. So they hastily put together a statement in which they said they would look again at the, uh, the convention, the agreement, if you will, uh, between their players and the Federation when it comes to exploiting their image rights for... Uh, FFF um, commercial sponsors or, or partners. Um, so it, it's actually a big story because A, Bappe won, which is not exactly a surprise. He's the boss. And B, I think it will encourage a number of other footballers uh, of that caliber to go to their federations and to say, you know what, you're using our likeness to promote this, to promote that. Very often we're not even aware of the fact that our faces are used to promote this, promote that. And, and this actually is going to, um, I think, create quite 
quite a stir and have a big impact on, on the way that footballers relate in economic terms, that is, to their friend, to the federation and to the national team. But in this particular case, there could only be one winner, and the winner is, of course, Kylian Mbappé. Yeah, I spent some time in France over the summer and got to see up close the love that there is for Kylian Mbappe and I wondered if this in conjunction with the obviously the spat that's ongoing at, at PSG um, whether it, it impacts negatively on his brand or it just grows the brand of Kylian Mbappe now uh, I, I think these are two different things what's, what's happened at PSG the fact that people keep talking about the relationship between the, the triangle you know uh, mm. Uh, that is, you know, Neymar, Messi, Mbappé, and and what happened with this image rights? Uh, I think for the way it comes to the image rights, I think most people would say he's perfectly in his right to do what he wants to do, and if he doesn't want to take part in a photo shoot, he doesn't want to take part in a photo shoot. I mean, there's a slight part of, uh, I have to say, I mean, I would I would call it hypocrisy or certainly double standards when it comes to the player because. Um, I'm not aware of the fact that once he might object to uh, publicize a, uh, a fast food brand uh, on, you know, health reason, for health reasons, ethical reasons, uh, the number of things that PSG is uh, partnering, including betting operators, very shady betting operators, uh, and, and it doesn't seem to have a problem with that. So I think there's a little bit of double mm. standards here. Uh, we shall see. Uh, Philippe, I'm just uh, while, we're, while we're speaking about PSG and Ligue 1, uh, like looking at the, one of the games at the weekend, uh, a red card after uh, a matter of seconds, 40 seconds, nine, in, in, nine seconds. Sorry, nine sorry, seconds, the previous yes. record is 40, of course. Um, and, and like looking at the, 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 the stats and the numbers so far this season, so 11 red cards during game week three of the Ligue 1 season was the yep. most given in a single game week since records began in the 91 to 92 season, uh, and they have by far, when you compare Ligue 1 to, to other top leagues. Uh, across Europe at the minute uh, 34 red cards already given in Ligue 1 in just 8 game weeks the next highest is La Liga which has 20 uh, so 14 less like what it, and it's the same by the way in Ligue 2 Ligue 2 Ligue 1, uh, de, in France as well 43 red cards the highest of any major division in Europe what, what's going on Philippe is it are, have referees been told to stamp down for stronger this season or, or what's happening in, in France football at the minute well, you've given the answer here. Yes, there have been instructions given to referees to be a bit stricter in their application of the laws. And they've certainly taken the, that instruction very seriously. Um, and basically, they're showing red cards here, there and everywhere. And they've always been card happy in French football. I mean, more card happy than in other leagues. Certainly more card happy than in the Bundesliga or, or the Premier League. Uh, it's just uh, this year it's gone completely crazy. And, and what is even crazier is that uh, we are now using VAR and very often the VAR would give a referee a little bit of leeway to reconsider uh, you know, his opinion uh, of, what, uh, of what has happened on the pitch. And in this particular case, it seems almost to have encouraged uh, people to brandish more, uh, more red cards. And uh, that's not great for the spectacle because uh, a game in which a defender is, um, you know, sent off after nine seconds. I mean, he's only going to finish one way, is it? Yeah. So um, again, there's a debate about that, and also I think more interestingly, there is a debate when it comes to international football because these referees, some of them, also referee in European competitions, and and if the standards are not the same, uh, say in England where referees have been given the precisely opposite instruction, which is to let the game flow as much as possible and perhaps to excess. 
uh, and in France we have the very opposite, well, we need to know when it comes to, to Europe, be it club or national team competitions, what exactly is the standard that people should, uh, should expect? How should our referees referee, I don't know, in the Nations League or all the Europa Conference League, whatever, if they come from completely different approaches of the laws of football? And that's what we have at the moment. And perhaps the difference is greater today, I would imagine, than it's probably ever been in terms of the, uh, uh, the way that the laws are, are, are put into practice by the referees. And that's a little bit concerning. It's funny, like if nothing else, it's probably a, a strange sociological experiment in that you know a lot of the players playing in Ligue 1 who, who maybe go on to the World Cup, you know, are we going to see them being more conservative in the tackle, talking back less to referees? I'd be interested to see what impact this is going to have. Uh, it, it's very interesting, actually, what you're saying. It, it, and it might actually impair some of those players. You, you don't know. They might not go for a tackle which would be accepted uh, in an international competition, but which in France would be seen uh, very harshly by the referee. And they might actually change their, their view. It's, it's a, isn't it a bit much to ask players themselves to switch from one understanding of the way the law is going to be applied from one competition to the next? Is that normal? I don't think mm. so. Mm. Seems, uh, see, it does seem unfair. Philippe, thanks a million. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, Philippe Leclerc on the line. And there's uh, plenty more to talk to Philippe about, again, down the track as well, uh, in terms of the actual football on the field as well. The excitement about William Saliba, uh, Saliba mm-hmm. particularly, uh, is big there, and uh, not to mention Canada. So there's loads of stuff that we will come back to on that again. A few comments have come in to us. It's uh, 8.33. It's Thursday morning, wherever it is you're joining us this morning. Very good morning to you. And do keep the comments coming in. Um, a uh, commenter on YouTube says, Shane, this was a conversation we were having earlier on about your point about Kevin McStay using his media profile yeah, to yeah, yeah. Um, uh, get himself the gig. Uh, Declan Murphy says, first of all, McStay, whoop, it was there. and um, Probably for the better. That's gone. McStay, uh, All-Ireland Club winner and Connacht Intercounty uh, winner, not hired off media profile. Laughing emoji, says Declan. Good morning. No, to no, you. it's a fair. I'm not saying he was hired simply based off his media profile, but it kind of, it kind of hurt his chances. I mean, Ray Dempsey has a good CV as well, but... Um, yeah, it, it, it's just an, an interesting trend in that McConville and O'Rourke and others have have also gone down that line of of dipping into into and it's happened in Hurland as well. There's a number of managers who have kind of been in the the media eye and then gone on to to management. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I think there's something there. Perhaps there was a comment there that Colm has just deleted on me, um, saying that uh, basically questioning whether you're uh, you were using your own media profile to secure the uh, football captaincy. From on in town. Um, uh, no, I'd like to, I'd like to think my leadership on the pitch, um, Adrian, is the reason I got the got the armband. Uh, that that's what I would like to sure. think. Uh, and maybe that's my ego talking, but um, of course it is. Uh, well, I wasn't I wasn't captain last season, and I was was uh, the the texture's wrong. The texture's wrong. My my leadership qualities <laughs> is what got me the job. That's, that's the way to continue with this gig. Adam Hetherington on YouTube. Good morning to you, Adam. Says looking forward to all the snooker and F one, and of course the outing of the Monaghan Mafia. Yeah, well, I mean, the Kerry Mafia, um, I know very well from different trips, both down there and uh, around Dublin and, and up to Monaghan as well. So they're louder and perhaps more noticeable in the public eye than the Monaghan Mafia. We like to keep a, a very, very incognito um, appearance of matches. We, uh, we're very private, so you won't hear much about the Monaghan Mafia. But I will shout from the rooftops about all things Monaghan on the show, no doubt. And snooker and Formula One, obviously. A chicken fillet burger, Jesus, says Anna Fee. Um, Brian oh, yeah. Dorson says, when Southgate's England played a good team, they lost. He's great at beating inferior teams. Um, 
He's been fantastic at navigating easier ways to semi-finals and a shifty lad. Good morning to you, shifty lad. Uh, mid-season World Cup will definitely play to England's hands. All uh, fully Premiership fit instead of long, hard season. Definitely winnable, he says. So, yeah, we will see about all of that and uh, other comments in there as well. Um, Ross Cavanagh says, Story lads, listen to the show every morning for the last few years. Actually helps me get through work every day. I uh, was devastated to see Owen go and was worrying about who, uh, who was going to replace him. Absolutely delighted that it's Shane Hannon. Well done, Shane. One small step for Shane, one giant leap for Monaghan. Oh, that's a lovely comment. Ross, Ross, thank you. And that's not my, my, my dad or my mum using a burner <laughs> account, to my knowledge. Uh, but thank you, Ross. We're glad it helps you through your morning. He's definitely uh, tied a few bits and pieces there together. Um, right, do uh, keep those comments coming into us over the course of the morning with you until uh, 10. We're going to have Michael Verdi in the studio in just a little bit for you had to be there and uh, some interesting selections uh, for him. Uh, so we will do that in uh, in a little bit. Uh, I did get the opportunity yesterday to get down to Dromolin Castle Golf Club. Oh, yeah. Shane. This is uh, our first tee. It's the 10th. We started at the back nine. This is Nathan Murphy. No pressure. Wait for it. Four left. That was Nathan getting it away in the tenth. Um, it didn't get Go much better for a while. This is the uh, what a picturesque look at Jamal and Castle in the background there. This is the good form there, Adrian. Four. Yeah, look at the ball. Yeah, Great. yeah, that, straight onto the green. Good Westmeath and Isle Horan swing on you there. That was my probably one of my worst shots today. Was it? Said. It, it, just was, ha- uh, yeah. it was a brutal, and it was one of those ones like there's so many at a golf course where you just want to put ah, back in the picturesque. The that's ourselves, and Nathan and Johnny there, and um, that's Laura Beveridge, a Scottish player, really good company. We had her for the second nine, and um, she was really good company. It was she had her caddy with her uh, keel, so it was like give it just an interesting sort of. Uh, point of difference for us you know we were able to bounce off a few ideas whatever and we'd gotten to the 16th and I was just a bit off the fringe and it was uh, there wasn't much room to work with between the fringe and onto the green and a really narrow pin so there was almost nothing to work with but like I'm not going to be overcomplicating that I'm going to play a little pitch and wedge and sort of run it up as close as I can and that's that's how that's going to work I'm, yeah. not, I'm not overly thinking it. I'm a bit of a Dustin Johnson at the best of times there's myself a net nice bit of branding in the background there OTB Sports yeah you're, you're, um, you're trying to point at the OTB Sports we, we are. There. It that was actually, actually. It actually reminds me of something that uh, that attempted point. Yeah, yeah, that'll be one. Uh, Timo, that's another one. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, a very yeah, yeah, terrible yeah, yeah, yeah. point. Look at that. You're, <laughs> you're literally at pointing at the foot of the tree. I did see you farting away earlier on. I was wondering what's that fell up. That, uh, that, that makes sense. That's good for Emma Carroll. That uh, green was actually exactly where this in- incident took place. So, so where was the green over? Where, it was. Over yeah, there? It was where the camera was. Wherever it, you weren't it, pointing. Yeah, to yeah, yeah. Uh, we were facing it. So, so I was lining up the shot. Uh, you know, play it nice and simple. Mm. And the caddy was standing way over here. He was standing like 25 yards over here on the other side of the green. And he was like, I was just about to take a shot. And he goes, whoa, 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 hit it over here. And I was like, what is the easiest, most polite way that I can say to these nice people, thank you for the suggestion, but I'm but not no. doing that. That's just a ludicrous thing. And then Laura was like, no, no, we dropped a ball here uh, yesterday. And if you drop it here, it rolls all the way back there. And I thought, okay, I, she said it now. So the player <laughs> said it. I'm absolutely obliged to play the shot. So let's yeah. just assume that this hole is a write-off. She was stood sort of at the top of a bank. She was like, okay. I was like, what sort of pace? Play it up. Let it roll down. Grand. Played the ball out. Little pitch and wedge. Rolled it up the... Uh, Little sort of face of the mound halfway up the up the uh, uh, green, and sure enough, it reaches the pinnacle. And there's that little moment where this could overrun, Time and it's going to get very embarrassing. Yeah, and it just trickled over the back over the edge, Shane, back down towards the pin, about five or six feet away. 
absolute like the greatest shot that I will ever play do you know what I think is around the fringe do you know what the funniest thing is like and really co- coincidental is the fact that 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 great shot you mentioned that you hit wasn't wasn't filmed and like the, the shot that was filmed <laughs> was the was the worst shot of the day like that it's, uh, you'd almost say it was um, you know fluky or coincidental or, or, or unfortunate maybe from your we perspective we should have rolled the tape I, I accept that we really should have rolled the tape but I wouldn't have had to explain all that well uh, you had witnesses had I'll, I'll take your and word Drabolland for it is in uh, yeah the witnesses who will definitely not endorse um, what I was saying there um, who won between you and Nathan or is that uh, a, no, Nathan, Nathan probably would have won that yeah, yeah he, he plays more yeah. regularly does he yeah oh yeah he'd be playing yeah. he'd be playing quite a bit yeah but Dramolin was in absolute exception form we also had uh, Christina, Christina Napoleova uh, for our first nine and she was uh, brilliant mm. brilliant company and uh, former Czech Republic football international right so really interesting all around story her. really enjoyed it Dramolin in great shape uh, the KPMG uh, Women's Irish Open is going to be absolute cracker over the course of uh, the next few days so keep it, we'll be definitely keeping an eye out on our two players and uh, keeping an eye on them up close and much more personal Ashling O'Reilly good morning to you morning lads how's it going how are you keeping good now not too bad uh, yeah just what you said about Jamal and Castle Adrian it's absolutely immaculate just so stunning and there's been a lot a lot of work done over the last uh, year or so to get ready for this and it is going to be the first of a three-year deal for them to host the venue so it's uh, yeah, it's amazing to see the, the growth of the course and everything that's been done but uh, yeah, I was hearing all about it I didn't get to see you in action yesterday but uh, I'm sure, there were, I'm sure the, the, the evening was filled with chat about it, Ashling, yeah Yeah, 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 the rumours because I didn't know you were playing because I definitely would have went out and had a watch <laughs> but a few people said, yeah, did you not see them out there? and I was like, jeez, no, they said nothing they obviously were we, keeping it hush hush. We were the ones having great fun and playing bad golf. I think that's that's what was going on there. They, <laughs> they, they, you're right. They have obviously done so much work down there. They've spent about three million quid over the last couple of years to get it up to scratch. Mm-hmm. And there was a big excitement out around the course about the fact that the Irish Open was back on the uh, LET schedule. Absolutely, and I think it's so important. Like it's ten years since it was last on, and that was in Clean Castle in County Mead. And to think back, that was when Leona Maguire was a 17-year-old amateur playing in that game. So when you think about that, and, and she talked about that yesterday and being up against professionals and what that done for her to be able to be around that environment for a young Irish golfer, you know, that was, that was everything for her. And she thinks, you know, it really helped in her development and to give her that hunger and fight and to be able to see that it's possible to go on and, you know, play with these professionals. So... I think it's so exciting that it's back and it's amazing for some of the, the Irish amateurs that are going to be involved as well this week. It's great for them and it's just great for the game as a whole and, of course, for, for the game in Ireland. And there's going to be so many people coming out. Like the, the ticket sales are going well, so they're expecting the crowds. And I think when you have someone like Leona, you can definitely feel the, the excitement, the anticipation is definitely building. And, uh, yeah, you'll definitely see a big crowd around her because I was at Galgorm about last month now and you could see the, the Calvin jerseys dotted around the place. You know, people come out to see her. And, yeah, I think there's going to be no different this week and she's hoping to, to have a big week. I was listening, actually, this morning on the drive up to, to yourself chatting with Katrina Matthews and, and uh, Leona yesterday. A bit of concern about the. They are obviously complimenting Tremoland and this and the state that it's in, and and the greens playing very very well as well and fast. Uh, the rain could could cause some issues today, depending on depending on how it uh, how it lands down there, I guess. Yeah, it was raining this morning. It was raining quite heavily last night, so that was something they were a little bit worried about. And they did say that the course is quite tricky. So I think Adrian um, sort of 
testify to that there a minute ago. On <laughs> really a tricky. Shots. Playing very tough. Very tough. <laughs> yeah, so I suppose it depends how it, how it works out, how it suits them. And they did talk about it being very, very tricky. So I think when you have rain on top of that as well, you know, they, they talked about having to adjust their game. Um, but look, they're professionals at the end of the day and they're, they're well used to all different weather conditions. So um, I think they're well prepared for it. And I think coming to, to Ireland, like uh, Katrina talked about, you know, she has a rain jacket, she's all her rain gear. She was like, I'm well, well prepared. This was going to be the situation. So, uh, yeah, they're, they're not too worried about it, but hopefully it just doesn't cause any delays to the competition as a whole. The uh, Leona's inclusion has been such a big boost for it. She was obviously uh, confirmed in the last few weeks and it would have, um, I'm sure, put a big pressure on her schedule. And I see that uh, she was chatting yesterday about trying to get a different date for it to make it more accessible for her. And I mean, I think that the organisers would probably just have to listen to that and say, Grand, you're the main draw. Uh, What do you need? Yeah, you you really do feel the excitement from her that she's here. She wanted to be here. That that was the big thing, speaking to her. And she's just really looking forward to getting out there today. And I think having her involved, it's, there's definitely just another level of anticipation to the event. You can definitely feel that buzz around the course. Um, like She's had a good year so far. She's secured her, her maiden LPGA Tour victory. She got that career best finish as well. She finished a tie for fourth in last month. That was the AIGs, the Women's Open at Murfield. So I think a win at home in her first Women's Irish Open as a professional will be very special for her. Like she, as I said, competed 10 years ago. So to be back now and to achieve all she's achieved, to go on and get a win would be everything for her. But as I said, the course is quite tricky. If it suits or not today, we'll see. Um, we'll know a lot more after today. But um, yeah, it would just be amazing to, to have her go on and get a victory here. But even just to go out and have a good week. And yeah, there, there definitely is a great buzz about the place. And you see the amateurs uh, are very excited to mm. be able to go up and to speak to Leona. Um, obviously, to get that advice and everything that she's been through. You know, they're sort of at that that place now in their lives they're hoping they can go on and do what she's done so yeah it's brilliant to have her involved yeah but no doubt there'll be plenty of Cavan jerseys down at uh, Dremoland across the weekend like really interesting to hear her chatting with you as well Ashley talking about you know her influences growing up for herself and Lisa and you know watching Padraig Harrington win those majors and even Serena and Venus Williams's impact on them as well growing up but really really fascinating as you mentioned she's got her maiden LBG at her win sewn up and she's been a star of the Sondheim Cup but to win your home tournament, and for any golfer across the world, this is important. But I get the sense from Leona that winning the, the Women's Irish Open is 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 you know crucial in terms of her uh, development and for her ambitions as well. Yeah, I think so, Shane. Like she talked about the Solang Cup yesterday and how amazing it was to be able to get back to Calvin and to see the crowds, and she really couldn't believe the amount of people that came out and other girls um, involved in the Solang Cup team. You know, they went home and there was nothing. And they were all saying to her, geez, we all should have came to Ireland. Like the fuss that went on about you was unbelievable. You know, she was going around in, you know, the back of a open pack uh, BMW with her granny and all her family around. It was amazing to see. So I think for her, it, it's about being at home. It's about doing it in front of the fans, around her family or friends and being able to get that big win here. And like an Irish Open, like it's not been on for 10 years, as we said. So to be able to do this, it would be absolutely amazing for her. So I do think it's something that she would love to do. But at the same time, she always says she doesn't want to put any pressure on herself and go out and try and play the best ball- golf she can play and, and go from there. But uh, yeah, I think we know it would be it'd be unbelievable. It would be a great story, wouldn't it, if she, if she was the winner this week? 
and the, the main in terms of the pairings today and it's live on Sky if people who can't get down there want to check it out and obviously get down there is the other point um, 5 to 1 is the is all eyes on the first tee yeah absolutely so 5 to 1 is Leona Maguire she's uh, alongside uh, Katrina Matthew who we mentioned there so she's defending champion 10 years ago Colleen Castle she got the victory there so uh, she'll be one to watch as well. Aideen Walsh as well. She's a, an Irish amateur. I think we need to to watch out for her. She's probably my one to watch this week. Uh, she's the winner of the Leinster Women's Championship, um, a member of Le Hinch Golf Course, with where she won the AIG Women's Senior Cup earlier this month. But she's also a member of Dromolan Castle. So um, that that's where the, obviously it's taken place today. So I do think that you know that's going to stand to her. So I think to to watch out for her, she she teed off at um, just there half eight alongside Belgium's Manon um, Du Roy and Caroline Headwell of Sweden. So I think she's one to watch as well this week. Yeah, well, we'll be checking in uh, with you over the course of the week. Enjoy it, Ashling. Thanks so much, lads. Cheers, Ashling O'Reilly on course there for the KPMG Women's Irish Open at Tremolan Castle. It promises to be an absolute cracker week. And as Ashling has been pointing out, if Leona could keep herself in the mix, ideally at the top or a couple of shots back heading into the weekend, it really will start to capture the mood of the imagination that in a way, with any home open, you kind of need that thing like it's, you know, it's the same with the men's open that just keep that bubbling along and that's the one that'll pull in the people who are sort of have some awareness of Leona, not much awareness of golf, not much awareness of the Irish Open, that's the bit if that competitive thing is happening across Saturday and Sunday. Yeah, like and Leona's someone who doesn't seem to put too much pressure on herself and she doesn't really set herself uh, specific targets or ambitions, certainly publicly or, or verbally but yeah, winning, winning a home open, winning a women's Irish Open for her would, would be one of the pinnacles of her career and I know she's done so much already but uh, like it's hard, it's hard to believe she was so young when she was playing in Killeen Castle at that uh, that Irish Open ten years ago, uh, like I think she was seventeen. If she's twenty seven now, she was seventeen back then. Mm. And even Katrina Matthew joking yesterday with with Ashley as well, talking about the fact that she's the defending champion, but for a tournament that was that was ten years ago. Yeah, so it's yeah. it's a long time to be, to be uh, remaining the defending champion. But Jesus, it's gonna be it's gonna be set up very nicely. And I know everyone in Ballyconnell and everyone in Cavan and everyone in Ireland generally would like to see Leona do the business this weekend. So best of luck to her. A uh, good picture about Driscoll actually. He was down at the uh, pro am yesterday as well, um, getting his uh, drive away there in one of the holes. I, I saw him hit one shot yesterday. It was from the it was on the ninth, uh, the ninth hole, mm. uh, which is a in giant verticamas drivable par four. If you're very long off the tee, and when we came up, we were chatting to a couple of the um, spotters and stewards who'd been knocking around, and they were uh, giving us great encouragement and having a bit of crack with us. And they were like, "Oh no, it's like you know, three or four. Pe- Are you going to go for the going to go for the green?" And I was like, "No, there's <laughs> absolutely no chance. I'm going for the green because it's going straight in the drink, which was right in front. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like the the uh, you know showcase one of the sh- showcase holes coming back in towards the clubhouse. And the, she was like, "There's only like four or five players who've actually managed to hit the green today. Right. Brian O'Driscoll being one of them. I saw him Jeez. hit one shot from afar." And it turned out it was that one uh, yesterday. So he's obviously an yeah. exceptional. He's golfer. playing a lot of pro am tournaments, and, and he seems to be giving a lot of time to the golf at the minute, which is which is great. And he's uh, yeah, like <laughs> I suppose I don't know what he's what he's playing off at the minute, but I mean he's put so much time into it that you'd love to see him properly in action and follow him around around because um, obviously in pro ams a lot of focus is on the golfers themselves. But yeah, in terms in celebrity terms, Brian is Brian's right up there. Uh, right, here's what's happening across the back pages for you this morning. We'll have John in studio in just a little bit where he'll bring us up to speed with everything that's happening very uh, latest in uh, live sport this morning. And we still have Michael Verney to come, who'll be talking to us about uh, his list of five things uh, from You Had to Be There. So that's all to come. And there's loads of great comments as well coming into us this morning. So do uh, keep them 
Uh, firing into us this morning it's coming up on 10 to 9 the uh, Irish Independent for you this morning uh, one of the few papers I have to say and maybe surprisingly so uh, that has gone with a back page splash picture of Leona Maguire at Tremolin Castle yesterday ahead of the big week there I would have thought that a lot more than what I got behind it but not the case uh, GEA Powers look to scrap league finals in football uh, writes Colm Keyes here as well on the back page of the Irish Independent uh, Kenny's Ireland will reach major finals says Matt Doherty there and Lancaster in the line for uh, Rassing move writes Keane Tracy over there but the league finals uh, being scrapped to make a mm. bit of space in the uh, calendar I don't like this at all not having it no and and look I, I'm coming at this from the perspective of I, I don't have the calendar answer I don't have the necessarily um, the knowledge to to to, to, to say where it's going to go depending on the on the you know the start of the league and the championship like they're talking about continuing with the hurling finals because uh, their championship starts slightly later than the football but ditching the football finals like I think this is this is a big shame even the year where, where the final was cancelled during Covid we, we kind of lost that opportunity to watch Dublin versus Kerry and you might call it shadow boxing in a league final but it's also an opportunity for fans to go see some silverware um, and, and see how the teams are looking that close to the championship like I remember 2005 when Monaghan won a Division 2 league title and the joy mm. uh, and it's probably the same in counties like Westmead as well where you get a little bit of silverware and it gives everyone in the county a boost if you take away that opportunity and just give the top two teams promotion you know, you, you, could you still crown a champion without having a final? It's not the same. I, look, yeah, you, you could say whoever finishes top of the group after the seven games deserves to be champion anyway. But we've seen so many times over the years the team that finishes second goes on and wins the final in Croke Park when the silverware is on the line. And I think that's where the that's that's where the excitement is. And yeah. it, 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 look, as I said, I don't have the, the necessarily the answer in terms of where where the final goes maybe you push everything a further week obviously that eats into the, the club calendar as well so maybe that's not the answer but I just something, think something has to give that's the thing yeah. and like it's never going to be everybody's everybody's satisfaction and that's 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 kind of fair enough for me I would kind of like if they would settle on a bloody calendar and just leave stick it stick with like, it why do we have to be having this debate all the time about the fixture schedule like I mean there's so much more good stuff to be chatting about the GEA it's so like not not an irrelevant conversation because it does have an impact on on the schedule, but the conversation itself about the bloody fixtures. It's a boring. It's a boring conversation. Nobody cares. GA fans are sick to the teeth of hearing about it. Um, and this this type of conversation comes up all the time. Um, and it has to be spoken about if it's going to happen. Yeah, we we, ha- we have to. And and it ties in directly to the to whether or not league finals happen. Look, maybe a lot of the people watching and listening this morning disagree com- completely that the league finals aren't really all that important. I just feel that it's a day out and it's a it's an, it's an opportunity to see the teams in Croke Park see how they fare against each other mm. and a chance to win silverware legitimately in a final where there's a little bit of drama so uh, that's my take on it The Irish Mirror this morning spurred on Doherty wants Irish starts just as Conte is demanding uh, Matt Doherty keen to follow Stephen uh, keen for Stephen Kelly to follow Conte's orders by handing him a first start uh, of the season against Scotland writes Paul Lennon there next Katie date is set it looks like she'll be finding at Wembley at the end of October there'd been some chat about Croke Park uh, a few weeks ago um, that would look unlikely to happen before the end of the year I would think if um, if that fight was to go ahead the uh, Irish Times for you Doherty looking to put lack of game time behind them that's that same story there Dykes in the double of Scotland ease to win which of course is knock on ramifications uh, for Ireland a big win uh, for Scotland last night very impressive stuff uh, John McGinn back to it and uh, him uh, playing really well last night and scoring brings mm. back into focus why this sort of play and uh, stuff is not happening at club level for him and yeah. basically 
increasing the heat. What he's done last night is increase the heat on CVG. That's the main takeaway. Forget about Scotland winning. Forget about the impact in Ireland. CVG's in bother again. Yeah, he hasn't really increased the heat on Stephen Kenny, but it but it really puts a different feel to the game. CVG. Yeah, but I'm no I'm Stephen Kenny as okay. well. I'm saying that there's a bit of heat because of okay. the result last night. Obviously, Steve, Stevie G as well at club level uh, begins to put the pressure on. But uh, I suppose the good thing was was sorry, it, it sounds very bad to say it, but Nathan Patterson's injury for Scotland Oof. not necessarily yeah. a good thing, but it could be a good Shame. thing for, wow. for for us on Saturday night, but also for for Seamus Coleman at club level might get some more game time at Everton as well. Um, the Irish Times, by the way, I should mention as well, uh, Jerry Thornley seemed to be leading the way with the uh, Stuart Lancaster to take over at Racing uh, story. So we should definitely mention that. I'm a believer, Doherty backs uh, Kenny's vision for Ireland side, the Irish Daily Mail. Uh, writes Philip Quinn there, the Lancaster story by uh, Rory Keane. And Lake put faith in Dolan's manager, writes Neon Clifford there too. The Irish star is You Can Conte on Me. That's a good one. Matt Backspur's uh, boss plan. Uh, that is inside. Uh, Grealish not so bothered. It's a nice little bit of beef bubbling up between uh, Graham Sinness and Jack Grealish. And I am here for it. The more of it, I'm sure <laughs> he'll be on uh, Talksport later today, and he'll have a little bit to say back about Jack Grealish's comments about no doubt. why he's picking on him all the time. Uh, Richard Dunn in the running to replace uh, Keith Long at Daily Mount Park at Bohemians. Uh, Hal fire friendly as uh, awesome Erling has come to Dublin. This is a uh, friendly against uh, Norway that's been lined up and um, uh, we can Darty Scotland uh, route show that Ireland have the talent to qualify John Duggan good morning to you Adrian and Shane how are we doing good there's so much interesting stuff going on there Richard what would you like to talk about well Richard Dunn we haven't mentioned at all um, I don't know how you know there's a few Derek Penders in the mix Finney Perth is in the mix Richard Dunn is in the mix I don't know it's an exclusive by Owen Cowser here in the sun um, I don't know is it a, like he's loosely in the mix and this yeah, not really going to happen or if it's a viable thing I'd be surprised if it happens um, but I don't know like maybe they have better information than I have but I'd be surprised if Richard Dunn is the next Bohemian's manager he has his badges in a way that uh, Derek Pender doesn't which might be to his favour if he had done on the duffer Ah, oh, it'd be amazing. <laughs> he doesn't have, uh, obviously, he's done a bit of work with the Ireland under 16s, I think it was at some point. He does, so his CV is not great, but I mean, I just think, obviously, Shane was talking about earlier on about like players, do, uh, former players doing punditry and how they give themselves in the spotlight. He obviously does that pretty uh, regularly with Virgin Media, so um, I mean, it'd just be a great extra wrinkle of interest for. Yeah, I can't see it happening personally, but. Um, look, as I said. Come on, entertain us for a few minutes. No, nah, no, nah, I don't do fake T- entertainment. Talk don't, fake, fake news, fake entertainment, Barry. <laughs> Have a go, Jack Grealish. There, come on, give us what, give us what uh, we need. GA powers look to scrap league finals in football. JD was one that Sam uh, Chain were chatting about earlier on. What's your view? I know what he's going to say here. I know what you're going to say, John. Go on. My um, well, my view is that the league is the best competition. It should be the championship. It isn't the championship. We had a chance to do that last year. It failed and uh, I was reading through the Irish Independent report and they're going to push the All-Irelands back about a, by about a week to the end of July. I still think they, the championship is too squeezed and we're seeing it now the last couple of months that I think Pat Spillane is right that the inter-county game uh, is the vehicle to provide money for the clubs and for facilities and for the association not to have their best competition in the shop window the last couple of months and have it at all to squeeze where you have a preliminary competition that who can remember who won the league 20 years ago? Yeah. Um, who can remember who won the league 10 years ago? Just can you, can you give, me, give me an answer of the pair of you? 
mm. off the top of your head. Probably has the people from those counties remember though. Well, no, but no, but you should. We, we're all sports fans. We're all sports nerds. We should know who won the league. If we were really like that deeply interested, we should know who won the league ten years ago. Um, the league should be this, the for football. It should be the competition in the main because I'd love to see Division Three and Division Four finals of a league in July and August um, instead of a Tottenham Cup. But that's not going to happen at the moment. So. Um, could we push the league even further back uh, to, and I think it's going to start at the end of January. So the, the, the whole thing is just too squeezed. And why not push the championship matches back a few weeks? Because you're having championship matches beginning in April. And I don't think psychologically people are even, by the time, you, like they were talking about in the report today in the Irishman, that the Munster and Leinster hurling finals be on the same day. You know, where's the interest? Where's the talkability? Where's the oxygen for it? It just seems all over very, very quickly. And I'm, I do agree with the split season. I think that's a benefit of club players. Um, but, you know, what is the difference in really one month? Is it going to make it that much of a difference? In terms of the final specifically, like say, say next year, Division 2, Dublin finish, Dublin finish second to Kildare or first and second, uh, and Kildare finish second, like... Do you care about a league final? As no, a I don't really. As a Dublin fan, the championship is the only thing that matters. Um, Do you think the players care? That's an extra bit of silverware. They'll, they'll never have the opportunity to win a Division Two title uh, again. Ooh, like really? Are you serious? Uh, uh, I'm in one of these moods this morning. <laughs> they'll still uh, give out a cup, surely. A they'll cup. still get yeah, sorry, silverware. yeah. Like, sorry. You can yeah. go down to the trophy shop and get a cup. You know, so. but they'll give it. To, they'll give it to the team that there just won't be a final. It's like the anti. It's the reverse Todd Bowley. Just feels a bit more empty. Not to have the I think I, I think for Division Three and Four teams, it's really important. Absolutely, Dane Croke Park. Um, what about Mayo winning the league a couple of years ago? Like big deal for them. They they took it very seriously. It was silverware, national silverware, Division One. They they they, they trade a hundred leagues for one All Ireland. Yeah, of course, of course. But and maybe the excitement was because Mayo won the league a few years ago and hurling didn't matter, Jot. Didn't matter. But it's a great competition. Um, it's a great preparatory competition. I think it's a great competition for teams in Division Three and Four. Um, but it just because it doesn't have the meaning that the championship has, yeah. and the championship's too squeezed. It didn't matter. But but say those Clare players in twenty years' time, or those Mayo players in twenty years' time, sitting in a pub reminiscing on their careers, are they not going to think back and say, "Do you know what? I'm, I'm actually glad I look back on my career and I, I won a Division One League title." I, look, maybe they will. Uh, I'd be of the view that they'll probably be thinking about the All Irelands and the Munster titles they lost, <laughs> or that they won, um, rather than that. You know. Uh, like the whole the whole narrative of Clare Hurling was uh, in 1977 and 78 we won the league um, and we're one of the best teams in the country but we couldn't get out of Munster and it was soul destroying and it took until 1995 for it to happen um, I remember I think Dublin won the league title in 1987 once you get into the championship and losing to Meath like your whole summer is in devastation so I don't think it carries the meaning that that the championship does. I don't like. I, I remember. I remember when Malachy O'Rourke first took over Monaghan in, in 2013. They were a Division Three team. Uh, they won the Ulster title that year, but they, they started that year by winning the Division Three title. The following year, the second successive promotion won a Division Two title. And I know those players have spoken to different members of that, that that panel in recent years. They look back and they say, right, we won two Ulster titles. We also won a Division Three and Division Two league title. I think like, it depends on the nice county. Fun. I think it depends on the county. I think Dublin winning the league in hurling in 2011, I think it was, was really really important. Mm. really really important and was the stepping stone to Dublin winning the Leinster hurling title in 2013 so you can look back if you're a Dublin hurler and go yeah we were nowhere we won the league title that was a really big deal so I think it depends on the context it depends yeah. on the county depends on the circumstance so for Monaghan win, if Monaghan won the Division 1 league title it would be a really big deal Yeah. well they could, and they, you know 
They could but, still but win for, the league. The but, thing is, there'll, but, there'll but, still be excitement at the, at the last round of games. That absolutely, you could, yeah. You could, like, you could end up with yeah. a matchup of first v second, which would effectively be a final anyway. There'll be everything on the line. Yeah. If this team get this score, we could win over here. Like, they'll still all. I don't be, know why they can't push the championship start back to the start of May and finish it in August. I don't really see what what is the urgency of you got to finish the championship by the end of July, when for a hundred years you have them in September. Now I know the reasons because you have a split season and all that, and that's all fair and it's all good and it's important for the club player. But it just seems to be this urgency to get this done now, get it all finished by July. Whereas you could have it back a few weeks, uh, not the third Sunday in September, but maybe the third Sunday in August, and then that would give you the opportunity to have league finals. JD, yeah. give us the give us the load on what's happening. Um, well, uh, it's great to see golf at Jermolan Castle in Clare uh, this week. Um, Ashley Narali's down there, and the KPMG sponsored uh, Women's Irish Open. How will Leona Maguire do over the next four days? We also have uh, golfers involved in France: uh, Niall Carney, Jonathan Caldwell, Cormac Charvin at the Open de France. Uh, the President's Cup starting later on. Um, the kind of the the Shadow Rider Cup almost it is isn't between the USA and the international team in Quail Hollow in, in North Carolina. Uh, Paul O'Donovan and Fintan McCarthy in the water for the semi-final of the lightweight double skulls uh, at the World Championship in the Czech Republic. Today, they're in the boat at 10.35 Irish time. Like We'd be expecting them to win gold this week. A lot of Irish uh, crews in action, and we'll keep you updated across our bulletins on uh, all the stations across Barrett today. Uh, Stuart Lancaster, as we said, looking set to go to Racine uh, next summer. Uh, we have Shelburne against Shamrock Rovers in the League of Ireland Premier Division tonight at Talca Park. A 7.45 start. A win for the Hoops will send them four points clear of Derry. Desi Dolan, as we know, is the new Westmead manager. How are you feeling about that, Adrian? Positive. Yeah, really good. Nice continuation from previously. Slight concern that he hasn't got a huge amount of manager, managerial experience. He's been a selector um, a little bit. But generally, between himself and John Keane... And, um, it's not John Kane, no? Ah, right. I've, had the, I've, I've tried to bring this We already up. had this on the show no this morning. There's no hard pronunciation on that. Okay, whenever, fair enough. Well. Yourself. But no, there is. I, I'm, I'm uh, very positive about it. Slash. Somewhat excited. Is he the greatest? You, you mentioned the names in the hat. Like he, he is the two All-Stars. Oh four, no eight. John Keane is two as well, I think. No, John, sorry, John, John Keane is, is two. Uh, Desi, Desi, Desi is one. Yeah. Does that make John Keane the greatest Westmeath I think Desi probably is. I think he probably is. Like yeah. he should have buried Meath that day, obviously, and that'll uh, haunt us all. Was there a free that Desi had against Meath? Yeah, there was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. we got into I don't know. Was it like an Ireland semi-final possibly after that? Was that a lens? I was. I was in that maroon documentary uh, with my microphone and pod. Oh, were you? Yeah, I was in it. Yeah, yeah, with my leather jacket. In Westmeath folklore forever. All of, all of eighteen years ago. Yeah, yeah. So that's my claim to read, fame. Reading earlier that he scored one six, and I think on his first first ever championship outing for I was just first game for Westmeath against Antrim. Player. We're only getting back now to sort of recovering to where we were when. Desi was in his heyday. I had a great minor in under-21 teams as well. Yeah, um, Ireland winners, of course, yeah. yeah people uh, underappreciate John Heslin for the fa- yeah. during the Tottenham Cup, obviously overtaking that uh, all-time Westmead scoring record last year. and That wasn't an easy uh, target to, to surpass, so fair play to John Heslin for, for getting to that level and above. Uh, Kelly Taylor back in the ring on October 29th against uh, Karen Elizabeth Carvajal of Argentina in Wembley. And uh, Listowel, we had Bustleton winning the Kerry National yesterday. Uh, JJ Slevin riding for Joseph O'Brien uh, dramatic finish with Hewick falling at the last and uh, flat races being staged there today I'd love to go some, some year eight races being staged from 125 
down at the Harvest Festival, lads. JD, thanks a million. Oh, lads. Five past nine, OTB AM, uh, brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. So we've got an OTB Sports Radio over the course of today. Cora Staunton will be the subject of OTB Gold from one o'clock today. You'll have leaders' questions, fittingly enough, it's Stuart Lancaster at three. Uh, four o'clock, it's a retro panel. It's Kilkenny Legends uh, on that. Uh, Brian O'Driscoll meets Isna Sewe from a few years ago, just after Isa had retired. That's OTB Gold at six. And then uh, Nathan in the hot seat, no doubt, recounting you with more tales of how brilliant he fared at uh, Dramon and Castle yesterday that's live on your radio from 7 tonight you can uh, follow OTB across the social channels and subscribe to the OTB podcast network for all the very best and uh, latest in sports content there we're going to be back after these live with Michael Verney for the very latest episode of You Had To Be There It was so unexpected You had to be there Coupling Celtic at that time was a brilliant thing the atmosphere at Parkhead was always great You had to be there Nobody ever talks about this game nobody saw it uh, You had to be there yeah, it's only 10 past nine. It is Thursday morning. You're watching OTP AM and it is very much time for you had to be there. He's not here, but he is over there. Michael Verney, good morning to you. That's how we are. Traf- ship along the keys, unfortunately. <laughs> Traffic so is brutal. I, fa- I found a spot here uh, and I'm just hoping I'm not ejected or thrown up on the back of a, a lorry or something during the show. But we'll do our best. <laughs> well, listen, if at the very least, we'll do some good numbers out of that. So uh, we'll we'll uh, we'll deal with that if it crops up. We'll get into it because it's a, it's a great list. It's notable by some absences, which we might get to we might get to in a little bit. But uh, kick us off. We're going to go in chronological chronological order here, and we're kicking off with Joe Canning Fitzgibbon Cup final two thousand. Uh, yeah, no, it was actually only a Fitzgibbon Cup group game, group game. And I picked this game probably because I was involved in it myself and I'd heard so much about Joe growing up and I'd watched him on TV and various bits and pieces. But it's only when you see someone in the flesh that you realise, OK, this lad is a little bit different. And there's actually a lot of mitigating circumstances with this game. So we were... Uh, we had the possibility of playing Port Tumlin in All-Ireland Club Final in 08 we were both in the semi-finals and the semi-finals were fixed for 10 days later and there was this big Fitzgibbon Cup game on the Thursday before that and we we went over to LIT uh, with Joel obviously a big city derby uh, Joe was full forward for them I was playing cornerback for UL he was actually only on the pitch 20 minutes 20 minutes and within that time he had scored a penalty, he had scored two frees, and he actually pulled up his hamstring and was leaving the pitch when the ball rolled out over the sideline. And Davy got him to hit the sideline with a strained or torn hamstring before he left the pitch. And he lofted the sideline ball over the bar. And I was just like, literally like an audible like gasp of breath and thinking, this lad is built completely differently. And then left left the ten- pitch afterwards? Or yeah, left the pitch. It was literally like the ball was going out over the sideline as he was being helped off by the physio and members of the LAT backroom team. And Davey was literally like, will you take this? So he gets down, takes the sideline from about 60 yards out with a partially torn hamstring, puts it over the bar, and you're just thinking, this is, this is absolutely ridiculous. Like, that a, fella, that a fella can do this and he's injured. And then even just... At a, other parts of it then 10 days later he scores 1-9 in All-Ireland Club semi-final against Lockmore a month after that he breaks our hearts in a club final and then about 3 or 4 months after that he goes to town on Cork in that famous qualifier but it was my first insight to see up close and personal just how good you know you, you hear all the talk and you hear what he's done with Port Tumlin vocation in schools you see him on TV and in a couple of club finals and big games and then you see him up close and you're thinking Okay, the talk is totally warranted. This lad is going to be 
the next hurling superstar, and he was. I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. At the end of the game, at the end of the game, the game finished up level. We needed a win to go through. They needed a draw to go through. What was the difference? Canning's lying ball before he left the pitch. I just, I was literally rubbing my eyes in, in disbelief at what this guy was able to do and he's only on the pitch 20 minutes he's one of those players Mick when, uh, when you're watching when you go to watch a match in person he's actually we all know he's a big unit but he's nearly bigger than you expect him to be like it was it the same on the pitch when you're up close I'm not going to ask you to admit that you were afraid of Joe Canning on the pitch or anything to that effect but he uh, I'm sure when he comes near you on the pitch you know about it yeah 100% Shane yeah just yeah, he has all the skill. He's a great hand, great wrist, everything like that. But as well as that, he's about six three, six four. That time he was, you know, he was he was only a young fella, but he was such a big, strong, physical force. Uh, you knew if you got the ball in around him, or he got the ball in around you, that you were probably going to be blown away, even physically. And uh, yeah, I just that was my first. It was my first time to probably share a field with him. Where were you playing? As I said. I was playing corner back, yeah. So he was in, he was in around, he was full forward. So he would have been in around him. Uh, thankfully, he wasn't marking him. Um, but just even, just to actually see it up close, and it's probably, it's a, probably a throwaway game that very, very few people remember. But I just remember being hit by this kind of bullet almost, and thinking. Yeah, this guy is going to be something else. Were you chatting has. about him before, Mick? Like, was there obviously the chat had begun, as you say? Did you say it was a couple of months before the two twelve match? Uh, this was it was a, about three or four months before that two thousand eight qualifier against Cork down in Semple, in Semple Stadium, yeah. where he really announced himself. You know, I think he hit something like two eleven, and I think he said since that one of his biggest regrets is playing too well on his, you know, mm. one of his early championship games because the bar was set so high. But uh, just the, the chain of events that happened, you know, 10 days later, he was man the match in the club semi-final. A month after that, he was winning another club title. And then four or five months later, he was delivering one of the, probably one of the great inter-county performances. And just, it was my first time to share a field. And I just remember thinking, this guy is completely different. And you, just it's, it's, nice to, it's nice to know what it's like to even share a field with him and know what he can do on a pitch. And I, I like any time he stepped up to anything in a game thereafter, I was always thinking, yeah, he's probably going to nail this, uh, regardless of whether it's the four line balls against Galway in that semi, or against Limerick in that semi final in twenty or whatever it is. And it's like what Shane says there. It's like going to a match with David Clifford, where David Clifford is player now. You literally think anything is possible, and and that given day it was. Uh, I'm putting you on the spot here slightly, Mick. But where where does Canning rank in in terms of hurling's greatest placed ball hitters? Oh Jesus, Shane, very very high. Um, I'd have TJ Reid up ridiculously high as well because I just think he's so consistent now and he's a, probably a 95-96%. Uh, but as regards being able to hit a line ball from anywhere inside 100 yards and have the potential to score, being able to hit free anywhere 120 yards and maybe even further at times, he's mm. probably right up there, isn't he? Like He was hitting freeze, lads, and other in club finals when he was 16 or 17. Like, do you know what I mean? And he was put, I think he scored a line ball... Uh, from midfield against Loch Grey in a Galway County final when he was 15, senior county final. Now, this is just like, there's lads that are able to put over line balls now. I don't know if any anybody will be able to do it as well as he did. And just like, they're not scoring chances, lads, unless you're a freak. And he was an absolute hurling freak. When you're, when you're, like you say, you weren't marking him, but just one last one on it before we move on to your next one. Like, when you're on the pitch or like your man next to you is sort of marking him, like, what's the 
chat beforehand or what's the chat on the pitch about like given everything you've just said about how, how impossible a task it is to get the better of him what's the, is it just like listen we're just going to accept that he's going to score 10 or 11 points a day and that's it and if we do that and get out of dodge it's not a bad day kind of yeah it's kind of like deny 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 get, just keep the ball away from him as much as you possibly can and it's probably having real serious conversations with guys out the field where if ball is coming into Canning it has to be at least bad ball. It has to be ball that gives the defender a chance because if he's getting advantageous ball into him, like you're on a hiding to nothing no matter who you are. Right, we skip forward three years. It's 2011. It's the Kilkenny Senior Hurley Championship final replay. It's uh, Owen Larkin up against Henry's uh, Ballyhale. Larkin was 27 and he was a well-established player, uh, Kilkenny player, obviously, at that point. Hurler of the year in 2008. Set this one out for us. Uh, yeah, so I was actually I was at both games. I was at the drawn game uh, where Henry had to hit free to to level it in horrendous conditions, and one of the village players was literally four yards away from him with, with the hurl in his face, and it was not it was not blown or retaken right like that. He just took it and put it over the bar, and it was uh, it was it was sent to a replay. Then I went down to the replay, and to me, this is the greatest club hurling performance of all time. Um, literally everything Larkin did on that day turned to gold. And I'm not just talking about his freeze, and his freeze were impeccable. He hit eight from eight. Uh, he ended up with one eleven, uh, eight freeze. Literally, his hooking, his blocking, his hand passing, his the goal he got was just ridiculous within such a confined space with four guys on him. I, I've never seen as perfect a display of hurling as this. It was a brilliant individual display. It was a brilliant individual display within a brilliant team display. He brought teammates into the game. Conditions were really, really rough. And you know when you just see a guy literally taking a game by the scruff of the neck? He literally took the game by the scruff of the neck. And as you say there, uh, Adrian, this was a, a, a Ballyhill team with a young TJ Reid who's, go, who's going to be one of the best players of all time. Henry, who is widely regarded as you know one of the best of all time. Chaff Fitzpatrick, young Richie Reid in goals, Colin Fenley, Colin Fenley and Jackie Terrell actually both got sent off the same day. Um, so, like, the village were without their other main talisman in Jackie Terrell, and Larkin just grew another foot taller. He was completely unmarkable on that day, and I'd encourage anybody to go and find it on Twitter. It's on the village's account. It's a 60-minute game, 60-minute club game, and there's four minutes of outrageous highlights from Larkin it's literally a highlight reel of it's everything that encompasses uh, you know a good hurling display it's all the scores all the flicks he gets back and hooks uh, Owen Reid at one stage and the ball goes wide I, I've never seen it's like you know you talk about giving a player 10 out of 10 he literally did not do anything wrong there were like this is Nadia Kamenech esque. Like there is no points you could take away from his performance. It was absolutely outrageous. That's the that's the stamp of a leader, isn't it? You know, when 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 a team goes down to fourteen men, some players wilt and kind of curl up under the pressure, but uh, and accept defeat. But you know, when Terrell gets sent off in that game, Larkin obviously almost it, it almost pushes him on further, as you as you say, Mick. Yeah, the great players, I think, Shane sometimes realise. Uh, with different scenarios in games, okay, somebody's gone off injured. I need to even rise a bit, and even like even you could say maybe Shane Walsh the other night for Kilmacud was having a, a tough evening. Paul Mannion goes off. He probably realizes, okay, the pressure is on me a little more now. But the great players don't wilt under that pressure. They grow 
with that pressure and definitely Larkin did that day and it was like it was literally the same day that we're looking out uh, looking out the windows and seeing today real wet miserable uh, afternoon down in Nolan Park and they're against you know one of the great club teams of all time and this fella just delivers a display that yeah I haven't seen I haven't seen the like of it before and I haven't seen it since and that's 11 years ago I always go back to that is you know, the greatest individual club display I've ever seen. And I've stood in the same pitch as Brian Whelan where he's done crazy things. But even as good as he uh, as, as he was, I'm not sure if he delivered that perfect display like Larkin did here. I remember chatting Niall Rigney about when he was the James Stevens manager and he just said, like, as a manager, this is literally dreamland. You're looking at a player literally just lifting the whole team up and taking them by the scruff of the neck. And everything he did seemed to give more lads around him confidence. And I'd say lads around him did things maybe that day that they haven't done or they didn't do before or since just because of the confidence that he bred into them that day. Like one one eleven. Like one eleven is a scandalous individual scoreline. But then when you think about it, it's probably it's probably not even the, the you know the, the highest he's ever scored at club level. Like one eleven is is remarkable individual scoring, but he's probably he's probably he was probably so used to doing that in the Kilkenny Championship as well, Mick. Yeah, he would have been. Yeah, he would have been. You know, even he broke onto the Kilkenny panel as a result of having an unbelievable year out centre forward. That was his kind of his. Uh, that was his statement season. I think it was in was it all four or five where he was called in as a result of uh, you know when the village ended up winning the club all Ireland. And this is one eleven out of one twenty. And like this is before this is before. Uh, you know, the last five or six years where lads are probably routinely putting that up at club level. Mm-hmm. The ball is maybe a bit lighter. Uh, you know, hurls are of a lot better standard. Lads are better conditioned, probably. This was, yeah, this is an absolutely outrageous tally. And uh, I, I challenge anybody to find a better hurling performance in a in a club game than this. It's outrageous. Is is it a fair argument? I'm just looking at his uh, Owen Larkin stats for Kilkenny here, and like. He's got the eight All Irelands, but only two, only two All Stars. Mick, like, it, it, does that hint at a at an underrated player, perhaps at intercounty level? Oh yeah, yeah. Underrated would be the word you'd use. Um, he has a hurler year in there as well, mm. but uh, I think it's a hurler year from '08, a uh, year to beat Waterford in yeah. the final. But he definitely, he definitely would have been underrated. Yeah, just because I suppose it's only natural when you have uh, in the same team JJ Laney, Tommy Walsh, Noel Hickey. Henry Shefflin, uh, Richie Power, Eddie Brennan, uh, but he was yeah. I just yeah. I just think he was unbelievable throughout his Kilkenny career. They probably haven't replaced him yet, and probably will be a while replacing him. In that sense of a real dogged half forward that gets up and down the line and does that work, but can also kill you on the scoreboard as well. And just an unbelievable hand as well. Such a good hand in the air. So deceptive. That left-hander that comes in behind you on the high ball and uh, very, very hard to deal with. Great player. Um, they had a tight turnaround then because the, the replay nature of it and Jackie suspended and they lose out to Owlert, uh, I think it was about six days later by, by three points. Again, he scores 11 points, by the way. So uh, that's what you're dealing with there. Move on to selection number three. We're uh, skipping ahead seven years now. 2018 it's the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas it's Khabib beating McGregor and the context here Khabib is the undefeated lightweight champion McGregor's been uh, stripped of his title I think at that point due to inactivity if I'm right the Diaz loss and the rematch win was done it was a year on from the Mayweather nonsense at the same venue I think Uh, and a bad tempered build up yeah very bad tempered Um, I was over there um, 
in media capacity, um, I kind of uh, was <laughs> let, letting on. Letting on you I didn't was, need the inverted commas there. We we understood. <laughs> letting, on I was, letting on I was working, but I wasn't really working. It was actually, we were knocked out with a hurling championship before that year, and I tried to turn a negative into a positive. Uh, that fight was actually on the same day as my birthday. So I got to one of my mates who actually lives in, lives in China, but was over doing a bit of business in America. And I said, I, we need to meet in Vegas and try and go to this fight or whatever. So I actually went and got my accreditation and I was at all the, the build-up to it. And as you say, Adrian, it was very bad-tempered. At that time, it was uh, it was, probably, was and probably still is one of the biggest UFC fights uh, in history. And uh, there was so much kind of riding on it. Um, I'd enjoy uh, playing a bit of blackjack and doing, playing a bit of roulette and anything I anything I won in the build up to the fight rather than losing it at another table I decided to invest it in McGregor so I had a good I, I had a good few quid on McGregor going into the going into the fight uh, and then you kind of see maybe some of the nonsense that he was coming out with in the the pressers in the days beforehand and you might think maybe he's not uh, in the best mental state maybe coming into this fight but the whole build up to it like I was it was at a time when I probably I'd bought into McGregor quite a bit, uh, and he probably hadn't uh, maybe sullied his reputation too much at that stage. But I was kind of nervous even watching the fight. We did a lovely, uh, a lovely view of the fight. It was absolutely brilliant. It was so tense in the days coming up to it, and even the atmosphere around Vegas was very, very tense. Uh, and then the fight started, and you know, Khabib delivered an absolute exhibition of just grappling and being able just to grind McGregor down and just take his striking completely out of the equation. Um, but it was just so tense during the fight. Uh, and a lot, listen, a lot of, a lot of this is to do with just having been there for the fight and the build up, and having been there for the absolute chaos after I've, I've never, I've never been at any sporting event that resembled anything like that in the aftermath. Well, it was like you spoke about the nature of the fight and it was obviously very personal for Khabib and it, that became really evident. So there's a fourth round stoppage. He gets him in a, a neck crank and McGregor taps out um, and um, Khabib barks down at him from a standing position. Uh, not entirely unfamiliar to Irish football fans, maybe, or Man United football fans in a way that looks like he's saying almost, take that, you... Star, star, star. Uh, and he flings his mouth guard down, flings himself over the top of the octagon, and all hell breaks loose. Where were you sat for all that? I was sat up in, in the media centre, uh, as I said, working, doing a bit of work. Um, I, couldn't, I couldn't believe what I was seeing because like, he's, such a, he's such a humble kind of soft-natured fella outside of the octagon, an absolute killer inside, but so respectful and it was clear how McGregor and maybe members of his team, probably Dylan Dennis in particular, had gotten that much under his skin mm. that it just caused him to completely snap. Imagine to say a guy could be that, not relaxed inside the cage, but was able to stick to his game plan, do everything that you know he does best. And then nearly the second the bell was rang, uh, maybe there's a few people shouting bits and pieces at him and he throws his mouth guard and just goes with like, flying kung fu kick in the direction of Dylan Dennis and uh, I know John Kavanaugh wasn't too far away and it was just absolute chaos absolute chaos they probably didn't have enough security guards there on the night uh, it was just madness in the few minutes thereafter and then we were all trying to get down to the media scrum to the media tent after just to see exactly what would happen there and we were probably waiting about an hour and Khabib came in and just delivered kind of a speech for about four and a half minutes and there was no questions asked or anything like that. He said what he had to say 
and he left. Um, and I remember a lot of people getting on to me after because they knew I was over there and just saying, you know, mind yourself or stay safe or whatever. And I remember being at um, some sort of a vodka launch or something the day before, one of the big vodka companies that, that sponsors them. And I just remember getting a picture with these two models and uh, I just put up a picture maybe the next day and says uh, on Facebook was like, uh, no need to worry, lads. I'm in, sa- I'm in safe hands. And it was just, yeah, it was just everything about it was just a bit mad. That, like it kind of, and there was a weird vibe around the, the strip in Vegas that night, a real weird, dangerous kind of violent vibe about it. Um, I've never been, you know, at a soccer game in Galatasaray or anything like that, where there's, you know, where there's that kind of, violent couldn't be that violent vibe to it it was uh, such a strange thing to be involved in but something that I definitely look back on with uh, with great memories I have to say it was it's it's one of those you had to be there moments you can kind of, yeah you can kind of tell through the TV to an extent you can kind of feel the atmosphere at some of those UFC events but you can't really I mean what what's those walkouts especially, Mick, you know, when, when Sinead O'Connor comes on over the tunnel and you've got so many Irish fans in, like it's 20,000 odd people that can get it fit into the, the T-Mobile yeah. Arena in Vegas. Like what was that like, that, that walkout moment? It's obviously something special when you're there in person. Yeah, um, even as we're talking about it here now, I'd have, I'd have the goosebumps in it because I love that pageantry element of it. I'd, I'd be a big wrestling fan and I, wouldn't, and I wouldn't hide it. And part of my love of it is the pageantry of it all and those walkouts, the McGregor walkout, you know, I would have loved to have been there when he fought uh, Chad Mendes when Sinead was actually singing live. Uh, but this was this was unbelievable. And I think they said it, uh, even live in commentary, looking back at the event after, like it, McGregor's entrance is one of the great things probably in all of sport and entertainment. And, you know, when he does the, the Vince McMahon billy walk around, around the octagon and all that, it's just... It is. Uh, it's something that I'd say it has to be kind of seen to be believed. Yeah, I, I was so nervous even going into going into the fight, and luckily I, I didn't need to be partial or anything like that, and I was just there kind of as a fan. But it was. Uh, it's definitely something I'd try and do again. I'll put it to you that way. Yeah. Um, right, and from one, obviously, as you say, he, uh, we've gotten to know McGregor a little bit, a uh, little bit more in the meantime, and uh, a lot of things to not like about him. So, from one person that we, uh, sorry, I definitely struggle to get behind to another that uh, the entire country is uh, very much behind and really stole the headlines. So, I'll paint a bit of the picture, making you take it up again. Uh, it's Rachel Blackmore, it's Aplutar Cheltenham in the Gold Cup this year. Um, the context here: she'd been doing some brilliant stuff, big wins, honey. Aplutar, Envoy Alan over previous years. She had an entry Grand National under her belt, top jockey at Cheltenham last year, um, and had done well even on Honeysuckle at Cheltenham that week. But no female jockey had ever won the Cheltenham Gold Cup. That and the disappointment of having some come so close in 2021. Yeah, uh, I suppose that's a lot of it, Adrian, is how much she'd achieved the year before. Uh, I wasn't at Cheltenham the year before. There was no Irish media mm-hmm. at Cheltenham the year before. She'd had six winners. First ever female rider to win the champion hurdle. First female rider to be crowned champion jockey uh, at Cheltenham. But she will even say herself after that, you know, there was a little asterisk beside that Cheltenham because she was so disappointed. Whether it was uh, picking the wrong horse in the che- in the Cheltenham Gold Cup, she stayed on Aplutar in 2021 uh, and gave up the ride in Manella Indo and Jack Kendi ended up winning the race. And there was maybe a bit of regret of maybe... Um, Letting uh, letting Manella Indo get a bit too far away from her and not being able to uh, reel him back in in 2021, and for that 2022 Gold Cup, I remember I actually went out and stood uh, 
infield on the track with uh, Philip Quinn and the Daily Mail at the final fence and you kind of you can't really hear the commentary when you're in there you're just seeing what you're seeing from fence to fence and we were looking at the second last jump and you're thinking she's probably a bit out of contention here and then all of a sudden between the second last fence and the last fence all of a sudden Rachel takes it up and you're just thinking I'm thinking I'm standing beside the last fence here had my phone out usually wouldn't take any video or pictures or anything like that but I have a lovely video of Aplutar jumping the last fence with, with Rachel and you can just see it and she's just gone on and she goes on and she wins the Gold Cup by the guts of about 20 lengths and everything she had achieved until that point as I said first lady rider to win the champion hurdle first lady rider to win the entry uh, Grand National but this is another step up again and it's not that it was a demon or anything inside of her but it was her exercising maybe something or just you know getting back a moment maybe that she thought she had lost from the year before and going on to be uh, a Cheltenham Gold Cup winner it was unbelievable to be there and just to see her star go even further into the stratosphere. Yeah, it's, I remember watching this race at home in, in, in the pub, making and like I guess the fact that it was a reversal of the previous year when Manila Indo won as well, uh, and then the fact, as you say, that it was so dominant um, that she pushed on from that final fence and, and won by what it was a 15 or 20 lengths, as you say. Uh, the dominance of it was probably the surprising aspect. Yeah, um, it wasn't, you know, maybe a classic horse race or a classic uh, piece of jockeyship where you're thinking, you know, they get up and win by a head like that famous uh, AP McCoy ride in Richard DeLyman at the in, in Cheltenham where he's literally cajoling and whatever. This was just Rachel absolutely oozing class. And just to see the just to see the aftermath of it, like we walked back, myself and Philip Quinn walked back uh, up the chute, like literally behind Rachel and just to see what it meant to everybody and how she uh, how she probably just captured every, everybody's hearts and just to be there for a part of history and uh, I think it's important to stay following uh, her career over the next while like she's just re, you know she's rewritten the history books uh, in so many ways already and I'm sure she will continue to do so but like to me the six winners at Cheltenham the year, year before were unbelievable but this is again this is the cream of the crop every jockey the two races that a jockey grows up wanting to win, a jump jockey, are the Entregan National and the Cheltenham Gold Cup. And she did it, and she did it in such dominant fashion as that. There's um, a real Forrest Gump quality emerging here, Mick, between being on the pitch like with Joe Canning, and then you're in the media centre for the McGregor fight, and now you're like <laughs> coming up the shoot behind the, <laughs> behind the winning or the Gold Cup winner, and been at the finish line. It's uh, there's definitely a pattern here, um, but yeah, look an incredible, incredible thing as you say, like coming you know two from home, and it's the re- you know, Manila Endo looks like you know he's heading for home, and that's that's the way it's got to go. But as Shane said, like a really dominant win in the end. Let's move on to your final pick. It's um, another very recent one obviously if we're going chronologically it's the All-Ireland Hurling Final this year but specifically Garrod Herity uh, for um, Hegarty for Limerick Yeah um, similar to Owen Arkin's display for the village in 2011 um, like I would put this uh, inter-county performance up against any other inter-county performance I've ever seen here's a guy who has in the previous two All-Irelands he scored seven points in 2020 from play. He scored 2-2 in 2021. And you're just thinking, how can he top those two displays? Mm-hmm. And he goes and does it. And it's it's a, it's a similar situation to Larkin as well. Needs really, like most at this time. Keen Lynch, is, Keen Lynch is not on the pitch. They're two-time hurler of the year. A player who um, creates probably so many opportunities for Hegarty. And this guy just... 
like he's a big guy at six foot five already, but he just stands even taller again. Um, and you knew after about three or four minutes, once he once he beautifully flicked up that ball for himself and scored one of the probably the best goals we've probably seen in all Ireland final, passed one of the best goalkeepers of all Class. time in Owen Murphy. Yeah, like just outrageous top corner, top corner finish. Literally, you know, a goal that could not be saved. He finished with one five on the day. Again, for me, it's probably, as a defender, I probably appreciate the work and the graft even more so than the scores. Um, he was back at his own 21 at different stages. We'll never get the GPS stats from these elite teams, maybe until someone does a book at some stage, maybe down the line. But like he must have been, he must have been covering close to about 15K that day. And literally, he did not probably tire until, I'd say, the 75th minute. He probably tired in the last minute. But up until that point, he was literally flawless. And he was, there's a couple of times he got a ball at one stage in the second half. And Limerick really needed a score. And David Blanchfield, who did well when he came on on him, actually, came, comes to tackle him. And Hegarty literally just throws him to the ground. This is a guy who's gone, you know, he had been running, running hard for probably 72 or 73 minutes before that. And he lost the ball over from about 100 yards. And you're just thinking, this is an absolute force of nature on this day. Literally an unstoppable force. And Limerick needed a performance like that from one of their key men to get over the line because they were pushed to within a pin of their collar. When you're thinking about all the pressure, three in a row, all the pressure, he'd had a poor semi-final. Can he deliver anything like the previous two final displays? And he goes out and, you know, Deliver something like that it was what it was. Yeah, it was probably the best inter-county display I've seen in person. Definitely the best All Ireland final display I've seen in person. It was one one for the purists as well, making that you know you mentioned the early goal, but I think he gets Limerick's last point of the game as well. So as you say, he's going from minute one to the last minute, and nice circular. <clears throat> excuse me, a nice circular feel to it to a masterful performance when you can lob over the last point of the game for the team as well. Yeah, exactly, and. It just you know yourself where a lad could score, a lad or a lady could score five or six in the first half, and you could end up getting man of the match or a player of the match. But you know to be able to deliver that consistent display over like an inter-county hurling game is eighty minutes now realistically between injury time in the first half, injury time in the second half, and to be literally on point and at your best and as close to flawless as possible from minute one to minute eighty. And like I don't recall, I've looked back at it since. I don't really remember making a mistake. He, you know, people would have said that you know his tackling maybe was uh, a bit borderline at different stages. He didn't give away a free in the All Ireland final. He scored one five. He set up loads of other attacks. He grafted. He worked. He was as much of a defender as an attacker throughout the game. And the thing, as I said as well, when the need was greatest for one of their marquee men to step up, he definitely stepped up. He's, uh, you mentioned the physicality and the strength of, of Hegarty as well there, Mick, and I think it's uh, Carbro Calderon came on, on board with, with John Kiley as strength and conditioning coach the end of last year, I think it was. Like, when you look at Garoge Hegarty's physique, he is a, he's a walking, talking billboard for the, for the increased emphasis, I guess, on, on strength and conditioning in, in the game as well in recent years. Oh, big time, yeah. And it's it's probably a change in physique as well. Uh, bulk would have been seen as being very important, maybe, you know, even... You know, if you look at the Armagh, say, Armagh footballers from 2002, all big lads, big kind of musty fellas, whereas the physique of hurlers and footballers has probably changed a good bit there. You need to be uh, probably a bit leaner. You don't need to be carrying that bulk as much because you need to be getting around the pitch. So it's a... 
it's a kind of a happy marriage between being able, being able to get around the pitch and having that athleticism, but also having the power to be able to break a tackle, to be able to deliver a hit. So Hegarty to me is probably the prototype of a guy like that. And yeah, just to imagine to say he's, you know, he's delivered three fourteen from play in three All Ireland finals and capped with that one five uh, only a couple of months ago. And just to see it, and just to see a lad who was so on point, so on his game. And I remember Keen Lynch saying after I was chatting, then the next morning he just said, "I was looking at uh, Garrod in the warm up, and he just looked so loose." And he was going around doing flicks and mm. doing things like you do out in the garden, and that's just such a good sign. That's such a good sign of a player just enjoying it, just reveling in the occasion. And uh, he certainly did. I'm interested to hear. I know you said there at the start some interesting omissions, so I'm interested to hear what the what the omissions well, are. My big one, I, I was expecting when I when I came in this morning, I was expecting the crucible or one of the, one to five snooker was what I was. Thinking. I, I, I was looking for fi- I was looking for five uh, five world snooker championship matches at the crucible, but I, but no, no, I'm only slightly disappointed that you didn't include the crucible. No WWE, but I, but I know it's still yeah, no WWE as well. So a couple of couple of um, slightly surprising no omissions. bar matches like a I minute. Mean, <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I, I've been at the Crucible three or four times, but I've not, uh, I've not been at you know a big world final or a big black ball finish or anything yeah. like that. Unfortunately, hopefully, hopefully in time with the WWE, uh, I have some great memories. If we're talking about best I've seen, yes, I'll have, I'll put loads of them. Hulk Hogan against The Rock at WrestleMania 18, which which Willow Callan was actually at, which I'm sure he will have in his. Uh, you had to be there whenever that comes up, but. Um, it's, I suppose it's it's different when you're thinking of what you've actually been at uh, and what you've actually experienced. So they're my five. Probably Shane O'Donnell in 2013, the All Ireland final replay would probably have been uh, a close one as well. Mm. Just to see a guy coming in at 19 years of age and doing something like that, totally from left field, was unbelievable as well. Yeah, well, I'm going off to Google photographs of Mick Verney and Hulk Hogan, and I fully expect to find some results given the <laughs> nature of the conversation over the last uh, half an hour thereabouts. Good man, you've been a gent. Thanks, a million. Thanks a million, folks. Appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Mick Verney there. Uh, it was so and unexpected. You had to be there. Covering Celtic at that time was a brilliant thing. The atmosphere at Parkhead was always great. You had to be there. Nobody ever talks about this game. Nobody saw it. Uh, you had to be there. Uh, right, it's 20 to 10. Uh, that is almost it for today. Good man, Jim. Well done. Cheers, Adrian. Yeah, Good fair play. Uh, brought to you live each morning, of course, by Gillette Labs for an effort that's finished here today. We're back tomorrow morning. Kathleen and myself are going to be uh, reunited in studio by Kieran Donny. So you want to uh, tune in for that? We're going to have some rugby conversation with Alan Quinlan. We're going to also speak with the iconic ex Arsenal women's manager Vic Ackers. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.